Louder! Thrill me. Black as midnight on a moonless night. Bitches leave. Groovy. Fucking hold up, hold up. Well then, there, motherfucker! It's got a death curse. Let's fuck! I'll fuck anything that moves! <laughs> Let's show this prehistoric bitch how we do things downtown. Forever deep, bitch! <laughs> Oh, damn enchiladas! These guys are eleven. Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world. Brandon A. Lane bringing you another edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. It's October, but Michael is going to have to take a back seat because before we can get to the 31st, we got to go through the 13th with an in-depth retrospective of the criminally underrated slasher sequel, 1981's Friday the 13th, Part 2. It's also my absolute pleasure to welcome Lauren Marie Taylor, who you may remember as Vicky in the film. She's going to be making the arduous trip all the way from the Pakenak Lodge to the Black Lodge to talk about her experiences working on the film and maybe shed some light on those ugly-ass doo-doo brown panties she sports in the movie. Lots of great stuff coming up in this episode, but first, here's some messages from our sponsors. Hey wrestling fans, this is Eddie Shepard, one half of the guys over at Wrestling Recommendations, telling you to check out our podcast. Each week, myself and my best friend Travis Lasseter dive in with a deep retrospective and watch along to some of our favorite matches. We have curated a list of over 200 plus matches spanning over 40 plus years. We take all those matches, we throw them into a randomizer, and the very next week, that's the match we cover. Check us out at Wrestling Recom on Twitter, R-E-C-O-M-M, and Wrestling Recommendations on Facebook. And you can find us wherever podcasts are available. And let us bring our wrestling recommendations to you. Do you love metal? Are you a nerd? Well, have I got the podcast for you. It's the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast. Hosted by me, Metal Thrashing Mike. And every episode, I'll be bringing you fans from the world of underground heavy metal, just waiting for you to hear them. So go check us out on all major streaming services as the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast. Come on down to Mass by Lance, premium Friday the 13th custom-made hockey mask down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney. Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Mass by Lance. Go order one now, boy. Hey, assholes, it's me, Boner the Skeleton, mascot of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast, here to sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash? That's not a problem. Sell your blood. Sell your children. Go to the jack-off clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get the money as long as you give it to us. Would you like a t-shirt? A mug or a sticker to show that you're a true friend and a member of the Rant Army? Well, all you gotta do is go to RantArmy.com. And if you don't buy something, then fuck you. 
dive into the new action-packed thriller, Mr. Black. This is a story about a mafia hitman, Mr. Black, whose latest target is nothing like he's had to deal with before. Mr. Valentino is a man that's into the dark arts, who calls on the Grim Reaper to kill Black. However, the spell fails to be fully successful, as he is still murdered. Now, Death himself is pursuing Mr. Black relentlessly. Now who can Black turn to for help? Who can stop a curse like this? Get Mr. Black on Amazon Books or as a digital download on Kindle. Grab your sleeping bag, lace up your hiking boots, but for the love of God, abstain from drugs and premarital sex because tonight we're headed to the Pakenak Lodge, which is just across the lake from Camp Crystal Lake, where five years earlier, old Lady Voorhees went machete-happy on some horned-up teens. I'm your host, Brandon A. Lane, and thankfully on that night, Mrs. Voorhees had her head forcibly removed from her body on the shores of Camp Crystal Lake. But tonight, we're going to be putting the spotlight on her baby boy, and chronicle his rise to prominence as the king of 1980 slashers with an in-depth retrospective for 1981's Friday the 13th Part 2. Joining me to celebrate the carnage is this astounding and pussy-pounding wielder of the world-famous diamond-studded fuckhammer, sometimes drunk, always fat, the boozer weight, champion of podcasting, my best friend, Fat Tony! I'm so glad to be here. I'm newly reinvigorated about this, took some notes today. Listen to some stuff driving up here. Uh, I, I've got some good takes on this movie. Well, I'm overjoyed to have you back at the Black Lodge to talk about an excellent, if not somewhat overlooked, slasher sequel. So let's just hit the ground running. Friday the 13th Part 2 was released May 1st, 1981 on an estimated budget of $1,250,000. If you adjust that for inflation in 2023 money, that comes to roughly $3,845,293. Opening weekend, $6,429,784. Adjusted for inflation in 2022 money, that comes to nineteen million. $825,820 and its overall box office a whopping $21,722,776 adjusted for inflation that comes to $66,980,776 so that's a pretty good uh, return on their investment and that's why there were a billion fucking sequels to this movie because they made 20 times their budget back yeah, like, one, one almost every year of the entire 1980s, Friday the 13th was just, it was the constant. It was the McDonald's arches exactly. of, of film, you know? And they didn't really fuck it up till part eight, which I still love. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I, 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 I love it less, but it's like, you know, like you have siblings and like there's the one you love the most, even though you're supposed to love everybody yeah, equally. Yeah, no, but, exactly. but still it's like, yeah, but you... You know, well, I mean, I have favorite stepkids. You know, Sadie's obviously the coolest, but you know, well, she would be the the, the final the chapter, final of your- chapter, and like Amelia or Evelyn could take place as the Jason takes Manhattan. Either way, what you know. you, what you need to do is just start pumping more babies in Sarah, so you can really fill well, out your roster. I'd, that way, you can my just- diamond instead of fuck hammer was so powerful that she had to have a hysterectomy because her uterus was stage two prolapsed. 
and they found cancer. I love you, Sarah. It's not a joke. But yeah, she she's now the the baby factory's closed, and it's just a playpen. Now. Well, you'll never have a child to be disappointed at, like 1989's Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight. Jason That's true. Well, I have sold sperm several times in my life, so there are probably some very big headed, thick boned. Uh, children out there, be they women or men, you know, beautiful hair, beautiful. I have great hair, (laughs) no leg hair though. So they're hairless people, but, uh, body wise, but you know, like, yeah, there there's, if you see somebody that looks like me, who's around probably mid twenties, who's a woman, but like, man, that looks like Anthony fucker. Cause it's probably my kid. You'd be like, I fucked your kid. Fuck you. That's beautiful. (laughs) That's how you own a friendship. That's horrible. <laughs> I'll win the friendship. So how old were you when you first saw part two? Part two, I ten, nine, ten, nine, ten years old, somewhere in there, like pre masturbating era, but old enough to start like being a person and not just like I'm a little kid, I like cartoons, you know, somewhere in there. My I had I'm the youngest of four, so all my older siblings was always showing me some kind of horror shit. I can remember specifically uh that I had not seen part one or part two growing up. Go Stop. Ahead. Was Racist Granny the one to show you this first? Actually, no. Oh, okay. No, actually not. No. So, I, the the hockey mast era of Jason. That's what you knew. That's what was, we all knew. Was all great Racist Grandmother. Oh, okay. I remember seeing part five multiple times rented from the v, you know uh, VHS store, the video store. The you VHS know. store. I don't sound old. Um, I remember specifically... Uh, me and my parents, we went to Gatlinburg for my birthday, Aww. and I don't remember what year this was. And because my birthday is on the 14th, we went there on a Friday, which happened to be Friday the 13th. Yes. And on the television, they showed part one and part two. And I was pretending to be asleep, but I watched these things. And the whole time, I'm like, where the fuck is Jason in the first movie? Because it's the first yeah. time I ever saw part one. Scared the shit out of me. The second movie... I'm like, oh, it's Jason. When's he going to get the hockey mask? And I spend the whole movie like, when's he going to get the uh, hockey what mask? What the fuck? Yeah. Nope. Didn't get it. Well, like, you're a few years younger, but we're all of that generation where hockey mask Jason is just was just embedded in us from childhood. The iconography yes. is as, uh, it's the Mickey Mouse of, exactly. of, of horror iconography. It's it's the same thing as, like, Freddy's Glove. You know, it's, it's so identifiable with the series. If you took it away... It almost feels lesser than. Exactly. And I think this may be the one that stands apart from that because the series evolved from point A to point B, but we're, we're like evolving Jason. He's in his like mid uh, Pokemon stage. I'm not a Pokemon <laughs> fan, but I'm, I'm trying to put it in the, in the terms the kids will understand. I don't know how. Yeah, that's an old reference even for the kids. Like, yeah, sure. I don't know. Uh, so uh, This is you- his Valente era... I don't know. Some stupid TikTok shit. Anyway, what do I think of what? I'm offended that you even said that. What do you think the IMDb rating for Friday the 13th Part 2 is? 4.3. 6 out of 10. Okay. I mean, it's pretty... I mean, it's a good sequel. I like it. There's a lot of good things. Me, uh, for for a general audience, I think that's probably fair. Yeah. For horror movie fans, I definitely would uh, take it a little higher because I really like Part 2. I would put it in probably my top four of the series, and I know, and everybody has wildly different yes. takes on what they what they prefer. But I, I just I really like this. It's a classic die in the wool slasher movie. Yes. Uh, what do you think the Rotten Tomatoes score is? Fifty three. Twenty nine. Damn. Rotten. And the audience score, you're a little closer with forty eight. 
again, a, a lot of Rotten Tomatoes came out later. This is a lot of era. Like, this isn't mass Jason. This is like this is the weird larval stage of Jason as a killer and horror movie. And you know, there's like his appearance at the end. There's Baghead Jason. There's a fun fact. An actual woman who plays Jason for a scene in this movie. We'll talk about Oh, that. we do? Okay, good. I thought I found a fun fact you might not know. Damn it. You're I wrong. should know better. This is Friday the 13th, Jason's, or is Brandon's baby. Yeah, you're the Freddy guy, I'm the Jason guy. And we perfectly complement each other, even though we butt heads from time to time. Yes. At the end of the day, we still hate Ash, and we're going to have to fight him <laughs> and take him take him out. No, yes. we, we love Ash. Uh, okay, what do you think the Metacritic score is? Oh, fucking... Okay, uh, I'm 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 gonna make this guess, thinking that since nah, there just for the the forty two for the point of reference, Metacritic Metacritic is usually the one we disagree with. They're always the wrong, most. but if I think they're gonna be wrong, they trick me and going higher. So I'm forty two. 26%. They're extra wrong. Okay, so they didn't try to be hipsters with it. They just went extra bad wrong. But we're talking about aggregate. But yet they give, what, 54% to Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5? Yeah, it's the world is upside Sons down. Sons of whores. world is upside down. I just want to go in their office and just tip shit up. It's probably some dude's house now because the decentralization of journalism. But <laughs> I'll go to his house and, like, throw out his Cheetos. Yeah, I like to think that it's one guy, and he's in his... It's like the it's guy... It's the South Park... You uh, beat me to it. You beat me to it. Uh, World of Warcraft guy. Live to win till you die. <laughs> okay. Uh, the one aggregate that we generally favorably agree with that is not our own is Google users. 83. You're close. 87. Uh, the good job, Google users. Yes. I would put it, for my personal ranking, I'd probably put it around that. It's not a perfect movie, but I think it's a, in terms of slasher movies, I think it's a yeah, it's, well-made movie. It's a B plus. However, the one to rule them all is the Rant Army review. In the Facebook group, we gave the Rant Army the opportunity to sound off on what they believe. Two options. Friday the 13th, part two, good. Friday the 13th, part two, bad. I'm going to feel strong about this. And let me let me preface this after I give my answer before you tell me. I'm going to say 96% stop because the cuck Travis Lasseter probably voted against it because he is just a contrarian bastard. And fat fuck Scott probably hates this movie because it's not his samurai warrior. Jason wouldn't have killed the kids in part six thing (laughs) because his bad taste. So those two, the, uh, Immovable force and unstoppable object of bad taste probably combined to do 96. Well, I can tell you that Scott voted positively on this movie. Broken clocks right twice a day, you know. And Travis didn't vote at all. So with a staggering 93%, the Rant Army has decided this is a good movie. Still are. But I understand this sequel. This, again, most people in the group, us even included, like we saw these after the fact. We had... The hockey mask Jason in our head from birth. So I could, this is kind of getting used to. And a hot take here before we talk about it. Uh, in the remake, I think Baghead Jason was the superior version to when he got the hockey mask. I wish he'd actually kept the mask longer. That was the badass. Yeah. 
Big up to Derek Mears. He's the best part Hell of that yeah. movie. Except for the stupendous, stupendous nipple placement. Absolutely. Perfect titties. Perfect nipple placement, baby. Okay. Stank Dick Eddie City Tally. We have one set of exposed breasts, courtesy of the beautiful Kristen Baker, who plays the perpetually brawless Terry. That Mickey Mouse shirt, I have never been more jealous <laughs> um, uh, uh, um, it cur- it curves every lump perfectly. It hugs it and and snuggles. It's like those late seventies, early eighties boobs. Per se- like the per- the the pinnacle of them. Like they're not big big old hangers like De- Deborah Sue Voorhees. Yeah, they're they're yeah, they're those pert and perky titties that were like real popular in like the late seventies, early eighties, and I love them. Yeah, we're we're pre boob job era where everybody could uh, go and you know manufacture their body. Um, she was just blessed. Thank you, Allah. Okay, <laughs> 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 uh, uh, Fat Tony's hit list. We have nine, ten. If Paul dies, more on that. Yeah, well, that's a whole can of worms. Jason makes quick work of most of the cast in this movie, but little did he know that the true hurdle he was going to have to overcome would be the overwhelming number of other horror movies released this calendar year. So let's break down the stiff competition of 1981. Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind, read off our laundry list of bangers. The glorious year of my birth. So there's a lot of good shit. All right, we're starting off strong. An American Werewolf in London. The Beyond, The Burning, a.k.a. Alternate Friday the 13th Part 2. Lots of similarities. Uh, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, mmm, auntie. <laughs> Cannibal Pharaoh. I think that's how you say that, Ferox? It's. I think Americans would say Ferox, but I believe it actually is pronounced Pharaoh. Yeah, well, I'm a hipster, so I'm going to say Pharaoh. Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, Dead and Buried, Deadly Blessings, Don't Go in the Woods, the motherfucking Evil Dead. Morristown yeah. represent. Uh, evil Speak. Love you. Uh, not Ron Howard. What's his name? <laughs> Fuck. Ron Howard's Clint brother. Howard. Clint Howard. Love you. Uh, Final Exam. Full Moon High. The Fun House. Fucking great movie. We need to do that one day. Ghost Story. Another great movie. It really is. And the scene where he's rubbing her titty with his foot and then she jumps up out of the tub. Great jump scare. Graduation Day, Halloween 2, fuck you, Travis. Happy, not Travis, Eddie. Well, fuck you too, Travis. Fuck both of them. (laughs) Happy Birthday to Me, Hell Night, The House by the Cemetery, The Howling, fucking love that movie, Just Before Dawn, The Monster Club, My Bloody Valentine, Mystics in Bali. If you have not seen this, find this movie and watch it. It is fucking bananas. It's wonderfully bonkers. The Nesting. Night School. Omen 3. Piranha 2. The Pit. The Prowler. Great kills, but such a fucking boring movie. Scanners. Fuck yes. Venom and Wolfen. All right, if you were to take that list, where do you think Friday the 13th lies in terms of Money like ranking? Like, what is it in the top 10? Is it a top five? Oh, it's in the top, yeah, it's in the top five that year because I know this is a big ass hit. All right, number five, Omen 3, $20,471,675. Number four, Friday the 13th, part two, $21,722,776. 
Number three, Ghost Story, $23,371,905. Number two, Halloween 2, $25,533,818. And number one, could it be anything else? No. An American Werewolf in London, $30,565,292. Directed by John Landis. Uh, who also directed Blues Brothers with Dan Aykroyd, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. And, you know, he might have killed a guy and a couple kids in the Twilight Zone movie, but that's neither here nor there. He gave us Blues Brothers. Well, Vic Morrow wasn't in uh, any movies I give a fuck about, so that's terrible to say. That's horrible. <laughs> but, uh, no, uh, and just real quickly, it wasn't that the year they made the Academy Award for Best Special Effects and, like, Robotine was, like, not Robotine. Not Robotine. Uh, uh, Rick Baker. Rick Baker. Rick Baker won for that movie, right? Yeah, they they instituted it. Because uh, uh, it's such a sexy scene. And it's crazy that like we have two werewolf movies that same year, and both of them have incredible transformation sequences. They're it's both just, so different. It's just, they're, yeah, they're, they're, the approach is different. Like, one is in shadow, and it's, you know, it's very ominous and dark, and the other one has... Up close and personal. And it's very... The, the music is so uplifting and fun, but the pained anguish of uh, David Naughton's uh, his vocal range is just wonderful stuff. Yes. 81's a big year. This is the heavy hitters. 81 was the year of the slasher. Because I was born that year. Well, you birthed it. You're, I birthed it. You opened January, the- I was in January. So unless something came out between the 1st and the 19th of January, which probably on that list did, but it's me. It's all thanks to me. You uh, you opened the mouth of hell, and we've been in <laughs> yes. slasher semen ever since. Unlike Sam Neill in Omen 3, I'm the true form of the Antichrist. It's just I'm too lazy to, like, Nazarene. <laughs> Nazarene, you're born. I was born of a jackal. <laughs> I love that fucking movie. It's a good movie. All right, before we can talk about this slasher sequel, we got to take a trip back to the early 80s and figure out how we got back to camp in the first place. So let's go from page to screen. Our story starts May 9th, 1980, with the release of the original Friday the 13th. On a meager budget of half a million, uh, Mrs. Voorhees and company, they just rampaged the box office to just shy of $40 million. By the end of that year, the little film that could had spawned a slew of imitators throwing open the floodgates for everyone with a film camera and a prop knife to get into the slasher movie business. Paramount took notice and a sequel was fast-tracked, but not everybody was sold on the prospect of a new Friday the 13th film. Part 1 director Sean Cunningham had this to say. So now this phenomenon takes place, and Friday the 13th opens up around the world. It's a big hit. And the powers that be said, we have to make a sequel. And I'm saying, why would you make a sequel? Mrs. Voorhees is dead, and the image of Jason in the lake is completely a fabrication of the mind. I don't know what in the world we could do for a sequel. Now, time has shown that adopting Jason as the new killer was financially the right move, but it's somewhat understandable that the creative forces behind Part 1, they were sort of reticent. That being said, it's an interesting mind exercise to kind of think about what could have been. Is there any alternate version of Part 2 that could have been successful. Like, what? What's a different direction? Unless you gone? had like Alice snapping and killing, or some do- or Jason's father, 
or some really dumb or inferior shit. And I just want to say, oh, I'm Sean Cunningham. Why make a sequel? I'm going to keep artistic integrity and do Deep Star Six or some bullet. I can't even remember the movie he did. It's underwater. But like that kind of. That is Deep Star Six. Yeah, that kind of (laughs) fucking thought really pissed me off because he didn't do this for artistic integrity. He came up with the ad before the the movie. So that that honestly has always annoyed me about him. At, like I get why the people once they made it, they're like, well, "How are you going to do a sequel?" Which I'm sorry, I like the yada yada yada. Jason didn't die. Oh, part two, I really do. I don't know that, and and Sean Cunningham is an interesting character, and I invite all of you to do your own research and kind of go down the rabbit hole because there's contradictory points of view, and that's just true pretty much on any film set where he bets on dog fights. I don't have proof. I don't have proof of that. Him and Michael Vick were best friends. I'm defying. <laughs> he has a lot of money. He can blow it on on dogfights. But the thing is that, like, I can understand from the perspective of like, really, like, where do you take this? And maybe, maybe fronting from an artistic point of view was really the preferable option of like, well, I don't have an idea. You know what I mean? I guess it's probably that more of well. saving face because I mean, come on, you, th- Look, the things he's made. There's no, there's very little artistic intent behind most of the projects. We're farting around and I'm buzzed, and I just thought, well, maybe if the ghost of Jason comes back, there you go, buddy. I'm dicking around talking about this to my buddy on a podcast, and just thought of an excuse that could have worked. I like the yada 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 hill like backwoods, uh, Jason. But like, where's there to t- there's a million ways to take this if, especially if your starting point was just the ad. Oh, I have no, I, I don't disagree with you. I don't, and they don't really have this in my notes. But do you think that like an anthology route? could have worked like where part two was like just another event that happens to take place on Friday the 13th. Uh, because even though like this has co- connective DNA to the first movie, it really doesn't hinge story wise other than the location much on. Yeah, I mean, the yeah, it could have worked, but like, I mean, that, that wouldn't have flown in 1980. Well, I don't think- it didn't fly in, what, 1984 or 3 with Halloween 3? Yeah, but th- you got to think, too. At the same time, like, you give two movies and that's the third movie. Maybe yeah. if it had been the second movie, people would have been more understanding. That it's going to be a different thing every time. There definitely would not be 12 movies if they went that exactly. route. But I, I just think four. In, in terms of, like, a direction they could have gone with, this is probably the most financially but successful they could have But I hate the people, like the screenwriter and, uh, what was it, Victor Miller and Sean Cunningham shit on the idea. And even, I kind of get why uh, Tom Sabini's like, what? That's, you know, but he did, honestly, the superior move, the burning is better. Let's just be real. I, I've... From an the, effects the, point the of effects view. Standpoint, from an yes. effects I'm sorry, let me reiterate. I enjoy part two more than the burning. There's forty minutes of the burning that could have been cut out, but when it gets down to the killing, the burning is a superior movie. It's very good. It's it's basically the Friday thirteenth movie that could have been. But what I'm that. saying is like the whole even to this day looking down their nose at it kind of pisses me off. So, for better or for worse, writing duties would fall upon a new person by the name of Ron Kurz, who had done extensive rewrites on the original script. Now, I don't have a lot of info as to why Victor Miller was not brought back, but considering the multi-year lawsuit that he and Sean Cunningham have been involved with in recent years, I think we can infer that Ron was probably in the easier 
decision. There was probably yeah. dissension to some level. And I don't mean to take anything away from Ron Kurz. Obviously, he was a key component into the creative process of the series. But during the production, we actually have the humble beginnings of a man who would go on to become the captain at the helm of the series, that being Frank Mancuso Jr. Co-producer Dennis Murphy had this to say about him. Frank Mancuso Jr. called me up before the show and he said he was going to come down and be a PA, that's a personal assistant, on the movie. I knew, of course, by this time his father was the president of Paramount Pictures. He, you know, went to work with us and was treated like a member of the crew. He became a member of the crew. He was really just there to learn, I think. That's how it started. He quickly caught on. Now, Frank was fresh out of college, had a little, he was a little more hip to what was going on in pop culture and became a familiar, connect, uh, like a familiar connection. Yeah. Uh, was able to get the job of a personal assistant on basically, you know, a little nothing movie at the time. It was, the yeah. first one was a big hit, but... Danny's going to let him go help out in the sequel. Yeah, it wasn't like a, a movie that was going to... You Not know, make or break Paramount. Ex- exactly. So, is this nepotism, or is this a case of a hardworking man kind of going up the corporate it's ladder? It's nepotism that was very fortuitous. I think... Like, it's definitely nepotism. 100%. Because it's a PA job. Anybody off the street can get those jobs. But, hey, it's the president of Paramount's son... It's not the worst case. Like it, it, it's. I hate to say, it, it's almost like a fair form of nepotism. He's he's getting the job because his dad's the connection, but his dad's not like setting him up with this cushy do nothing job. Like it's a job you're going to learn. So it's kind of a like seventy thirty thing. Seventy yeah. percent nepotism, thirty percent. It could have been a lot worse. He could have made him slap executive producer on him, and they're not going to stop it. But they did PA. <laughs> And like he, showed, and he he did like really step up for that, and he showed his dick to everybody on set. It was a good, it was a pretty dick though. Yeah, very, it's very attractive. Um, like good girth, um, not it, like Salvador, impressive, but not like intimidating. Salvador length. Dali did a three D model of it, <laughs> one of those holograms, like he did of Alice Cooper wearing the tiara. Um, all joking aside, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, obviously, it worked out for the benefit because I think he's the missing ingredient of the of you know the he brought it together films. and made it the franchise. He, he, I do have to say something for the screenwriter though. There, I can't remember what interview I was talking about. He's like, I didn't write the nude scene for the fans. I wrote the nude scene for me. Well, that just makes him a, like, yeah, that a makes hero. him a hero. That's what I'm saying. I had to give him. Pro- I couldn't let. His contribution go by without mentioning like a couple factoids I learned from this, because the way he said it was he's like I didn't write the nude scene for was, them I wrote the nude scene for me. Was that Ron Kurz? Ron Kurz. Okay, well I'm gonna put uh, coming soon to rantarmy.com uh, a picture of Ron Kurz that just says hero on it. <laughs> t-shirt, t-shirt, sticker, mug, whichever your choice. So, nepotism or not, the result speaks for themselves, because in short order, he would go from PA to producing the series. Frank had this to say, a couple of the people that were uh, above me the line, they just weren't working out, so they were getting rid of some people, and those people, uh, they just kept moving up the food chain, kindly and strangely, I think that only could happen on this kind of movie. Yeah. Um, Frank's uh, effect on part two is sort of nominal, but you can't deny how important he would be to the whole series. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, so do you think if, if he had not been there to kind of steward these things, like 
would the series have veered off course way sooner than it I did? think it would have. Like 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 you said, on this one, it's fairly nominal. But had he not just been in the franchise from then on, you you got four, and four would not have been as good as it was, and then probably died then. But you know, he kind of kept hip. He, he some people probably would be preferable yeah, to but that. it wouldn't have been good as part four that we got no like, i, it I been, agree it, it with would you. have been just like a forgettable here's a few you know little horror movies siskel and ebert would have uh fuck siskel and ebert they're both in hell getting raped <laughs> by bears with fire penises hell bear hell bears. coming coming soon from director donald farmer <laughs> hell yeah we're gonna pitch that to him all right fat tony if you'd be so kind, would you read the synopsis for Friday the 13th Part 2? I would be glad to. Five years after the massacre at Camp Crystal Lake, the nerve-wracking legend of Jason Voorhees and his diabolical mother lives on. Despite ominous warnings from the locals to stay away from Camp Blood, a group of counselors at a nearby summer camp decide to explore the area where seven people were brutally slaughtered. All too soon, they encounter horrors of their own, and the killing begins. Uh, the killing begins again. You'll be at the edge of your seat for this gruesome thriller about twenty-four hours of bone-chilling fear. And I do want to point out, kids, if you are if you're invited to go to a bar, go to a fucking bar. We'll definitely cover We're that. We're going to get to that. On. I know. With a fresh perspective uh, being plotted out by Ron Kurz, it was. It was up to Sean Cunningham's protege to deliver a financially successful film with his directing debut. We have Steve Miner uh, taking the helm of director. Now, he's directed all sorts of things, both good and bad. Uh, House, which oh, yeah. I, I love it. We actually had a conversation yes. about House at RetroFest <laughs> not long ago. Uh, very, very good movie. Uh, he did uh, a movie that is a little more, was socially acceptable at the time, but absolutely is not now. Soul Man, the oh, C. Thomas Howell movie where he wears blackface to get into college. At least they <sighs> do come down on the side at the end of the movie that that was a bad thing to do. Yeah, but they still made money. He off still of lets the white face. man get his way, though. It is he didn't write the script; he just took a directing job. Okay, and I, this this one kind of hurts to say because uh, Julian Sands at uh, uh, at the time we're recording this is still missing, presumed dead. We have Warlock, the first one. Yep, a great good, movie. Good low budget movie. My only thing I dislike about that entire movie is the chick's obvious wig. Well. Other than that, I mean, you should have like, you should have spent twelve ninety nine and went to Party City and got a better wig, Steve. Yeah, but other than that, it's a great direct to like. Did it? It didn't come out the theater. Directed like video horror movie. Uh, did it? it I may, don't think it, it may have gotten a limited limited theatrical. Run. I'm not entirely sure. I know the sequels definitely yes. did. Uh, I did Forever Young with Mel Gibson, which is a weirdly good movie. I not my cup of tea generally, but I've seen it. It's a it's a well yeah. made movie. This is pre, uh, pre uh, racist uh, Mel, yeah. like before your grandmother would really be a fan yeah, of him. Pre, let's beat Jesus on film for two hours. Yes, uh, Mel Gibson. Well, I mean that's just sick. Never mind. I'm not going to finish <laughs> that word. All right, uh, he was in big. I uh, directed Big Bully with Rick Moranis, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. Again, uh, he directed Lake Placid. I'm not a huge '90s fan, but that is an enjoyable, best Betty movie. White cameo ever. Uh, aside from the uh, the uh, poop porns 
that uh, that I make in my spare time. Yeah, yeah. that's that's the, that's the best Betty White cameo. He's edited her into the footage of Two Girls One Cup. His Photoshop skills are amazing. Yeah, well, I use deepfake technology. Well, yeah, the, thankfully the technology's caught up with it. Yeah, it, instead of the two original actresses, Betty White and B. Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> they, I'm not going to disrespect their memory. I apologize. They were they were kind enough to uh, crawl out of their graves and and do eighty they yards. They are Valhalla, their... <laughs> free of all sins. Fair enough. I, I won't yes, argue with that. You won't rest in peace, ladies. Um, one thing I will not uh, sign off on is Steve Miner's directing of the Day of the Dead remake. Ooh, it is. I've never good. been able to finish it. I've, now, I started it. Like, because Dawn of the Dead, for all the running zombies, everybody hates Zack Snyder. That's a good movie. I was getting ready to say, I, I am not a Zack Snyder fan, but the Dawn of the Dead remake is as good as a possible remake to Dawn of the it's Dead. It's the only be. reason to bother to make a remake, adding the, the well, his take on it. People also forget that uh, James Gunn wrote that. Yeah. And James Gunn has never made a bad movie. He really fucking hasn't. He's the only only. I've, I've yet to go see Guardians Three as of the time of this recording, but I've in in twenty years of knowing Brandon, he sent me a text. The movie made me cry twice. I'm not even ashamed to admit it. So I'm looking forward to it. I I can genuinely say that it is a well crafted movie. It doesn't fall into like oh it was good for a Marvel movie. No, it's just a good movie. Anyway, but yeah, no. So he also did Halloween H two O, which stars Jamie Lee Curtis, who was in My Girl with Dan Aykroyd, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted three times, and of course he returned to direct Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. Now just now I'm gonna stop you real quick. She was with Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places. You don't go My Girl. I did that to show variety. I know. I don't care. Trading Places for life. Well, Jamie Lee Curtis's tits in that movie are spent. They stupendous. premiered in that movie. That's true. Uh, uh, shout out to our buddy <laughs> Titty Flippin' Travis. Uh, the first set of tits he ever saw uh, on screen. Jamie Lee Curtis in Trading Places. Mm, I wish I, I was like down, down, not down in that. Yeah, down in that in Beverly Hills. The I thought you were gonna say Downton Abbey. <laughs> yeah, Downton Abbey. Are there titties in that show? I might watch it if they're titties. Uh, no, this is a PBS show. It's about lizard it's, people. It's, and like, it's only uh, dicks with monocles. So it's, they're very well, I mean, they keep bowler, it classy. Little bowler hats. <laughs> Look at my penis. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry to derail things, but I'm like, I love my girl. I grew, uh, I grew up with a crush on that girl. We're the same age. Anna Chomsky. She's Anna Chomsky. very attractive. So just in reading the short rundown of Steve Miner's work, he has a, a couple of accolades that no other director can boast. He is the only person alive that has not only directed more than one Friday the 13th film, he's also the only person to have directed Jason and a Michael movie. So, is this just the luck of the draw, or is Steve Miner sort of an unsung hero of slasher cinema? I mean, I'm fine with this. I like, I don't know. That's a that's a hard question. It's a competent, competently directed movie. H two O, despite you hating it for its definite '90s stank, which it has on it. It's it stanks of the '90s. Uh, is a good is a well directed movie with good, genuinely blocked out and directed scenes. I think it's about 50-50. I think that comparatively... Oh, yeah, he did Halloween 2. No, he didn't. No, mm -hmm. Halloween 2 just came out the same year. No, that was Rick Rosenthal. I had a little, I'm a little buzz, people. So, with him directing Friday 13th Part 2 and Part 3, there's a couple of factors that go into these movies being better visually yes. than Part 1. Number one is the budget. And number two... 
I am not trying to shit on Sean Cunningham, but Sean Cunningham has, has done his best work as a producer where Steve Miner was a little more adventurous with the way he moved the camera and the I way do, he framed stuff, you know? I know one of the things they included in their increased budget with this was Steve Miner wanting the steady cam so the, the camera could be in motion for a while. I mean, that's a little fun fact I actually learned today on the way up. Look at, look at you. Look at me learning. And then, you know, we're not talking about part three, but part three, you know, they had a, the reason he probably never made another Friday the 13th movie. It's such a bad, yeah, bad case of the 3D camera, which was just a fucking yeah, nightmare. nightmare. Okay, so tonally and in terms of suspense, I think Friday the 13th part two is the closest to the original film and credit where credit is due because I think Steve does a great job. Uh, Steve had worked very closely with Sean Cunningham on the original Friday the 13th and was the obvious choice to take over the directing chair. Co-producer Dennis Murphy had this to say, Steve Miner was definitely up for Friday the 13th Part 2, up for directing it. He, and probably with Sean's help, cast it. They found the location, and they did all the preliminary work on the show. I know that he was involved with some of the writing of it. Now, Steve can also take credit for being the only person in the history of the Friday the 13th series to sway Betsy Palmer to come back to her iconic role albeit as a brief cameo. Now, Betsy notoriously had not been fond of the original film and only took the job to, you know, to get a new car. However, Steve managed the impossible, and Betsy agreed to a day of shooting provided they filmed at her house. They set up a backdrop, and they did it at her home, and the rest is history. So, first question. How different would the series have been if Betsy had been more of a continual presence? Maybe... You know, as visions to Jason or something like that. Like that's a, that's an interesting question, but um, I think it would have been like a a different way to take it. But it would have taken the focus off Jason and made them more of like a killer duo somehow. Where you know this one is like, you know, he's a, he's a mama's boy always and forever. But I think this one and her little you know, uh, participation in this film and the head and the, his shrine kind of like shepherds it from Betsy being the killer to Jason, to Jason being a killer in his own right. So I, I'm kind of glad to me. And this is just my own. Cause head. you met her and she's awesome. Well, that she is Uh rest in peace, Betsy. If you were, if you were alive today, eat that puss out of respect, Damn dust, right. dust and all. Um, but, <laughs> but in my own head canon, the Jason's mother is there with him. Yeah. And it's like when you, we get to Freddy versus Jason where Freddy manipulates Jason by coming to him as the visage of his yes. mother, albeit not as Betsy Palmer. Yeah. But to me, even though we're not seeing it, that's. That's what he's seeing. So I think occasionally it wouldn't have to be like the over because you're not going to get Betsy Palmer no. to do an entire movie, but like a little thing here or there. I think it could have added a little more of the supernatural to element to the movies that are that comes later in the series, but is there from the beginning, uh, just not yeah. fully uh, investigated. Yeah, I'm about to make a weird example here. There is a mobile game. It's a Friday the 13th kind of puzzle game where you have to figure out, like, you have certain directions. You've got oh, yeah, to kill the pu- the puzzle killer. And yeah. the and his mother is kind of like gives you the hints, tells you, and is a presence throughout the game 
That's actually kind of a good idea. Uh, shout out to our our buddy, uh, director of Never Hike Alone, uh, because they actually put Ghost Jason in that game. Oh shit! Yeah, he's That's like, awesome. If you get to a certain level, like you can unlock different skins, and basically, I got, I got like, a it, lot of the Jasons. But I started actually paying money, so I'm like, I gotta delete this shit. I I I went down the fucking rabbit hole when that game came out, and I played it. And my phone, I had a shit phone at the time. And it got to the point where, like, it was taking up so much space I had to delete it. Because, yeah. like, it was just like, oh, my God, this is consuming my life. And, you know, I can't get it's text. It's a fun-ass game, though. It was, but, it was like, very- I like the, but, like, you're saying, the mom's in the corner, like, giving you hints sometimes. And, like, you know, kind of... It w- you kind of see it. You could, you know, you don't necessarily need the logic of like how does Jason know where everybody is at yeah. the time, but you know, if you could pepper that in from time to time, I just think it would have been cool to have Betsy Palmer. Oh yeah, more absolutely. than what we got. To a certain point, it is Jason's series, so eh, take that as you will. Um, the memory of Mrs. Voorhees uh, is. The, it plays an important part in the finale of the film with the altar in Jason's oh, yeah. cabin. And we're going to talk about that when we get to Jason. But <clears throat> there's a final twist that was filmed and ultimately cut from the film that would have changed the entire series with the decapitated head of Mrs. Voorhees opening her yeah, eyes. Yeah, the wink. So, well... Are you going to ask my question? What's your take on this? Like, No, leave it a dead head. Leave it all in the head. Don't make it like a wink and a nod. Because they even show, like, the jump scare in part three. It's just such fucking weak sauce. After the first two good ones, because they try to go, like, a ridiculous route. No, I am very glad that got cut out of the movie. I'm conflicted, not because I don't think it should have been cut. I'm conflicted because the end of the movie ends in a still frame. And that it is, looks awkward. That yes. has always bothered me. It should have been a. It should have never been filmed where they had to cut it like that. Yeah, I they, agree. They should have just cut the. They should have uh, dissolved as they're yes. pushing in, rather than hold on the the still frame. Absolutely. Then, yeah. So that's a technical error, and for you editors out there, rectify this problem, and you, you be improving upon right. a movie that can't be improved very much. A percentage point. Enough to make a difference for me to yeah. buy a physical copy because I'm fucking You're a whore. It doesn't matter. They're going to have a new new cover art or something. It's in 4K now. Oh, as soon as they get released on 4K, I'm, <laughs> I'm fucking upgrading again. So it's got to be hard to balance the tone of a movie, especially with like a hillbilly running around in the woods killing people. How much is too much? And like, how do you keep it scary and not goofy? Audiences like ultimately loved Friday the 13th part two and Steve Miner's direction, but critics did not. Steve had this to say, critics don't understand this kind of movie. You have to show some realistic violence in order to make the setup frightening. You can't scare people nowadays with showing some kind of gore, without showing some kind of gore. I have uh, my doubts whether the audience uh, that enjoys pure psychological terror exists anymore. You don't necessarily have to dwell on violence. However, you do have to satisfy satisfy an audience. Um, so, what's your take on that? Because I think I have somewhat similar view, but a, but a contradictory one as well. In the 80s, he's 100% right. This is coming off disco years, Reaganomics, all the cool. You have to amp it up. There, we're not. We don't want my grandma's horror movies anymore. You know, we're totally tubular. I'm trying to think of '80s slang, but 
but he's not wrong. You have to show it, but at the same time, you should never read what a critic says about slashers. But in this modern age, like now, where the internet has kind of made past and present cyclical and constantly, that you can now just scare people with psychological. Like I saw Speak No Evil, like. Oh, I love four nights. That movie fucked me up. I loved it. I couldn't talk for ten minutes afterwards. And there's terrible parents in that movie, but but very, very effective. Here's my contradiction to what you're saying. This is the same year that Ghost Story came out. And it still has a lot of good effects. It does, but it's not a gory movie. The the, the movie doesn't hinge on it, but they still bother to include it. And I love Ghost Story. Totally unlike I, the book it's based on. I love the book, but well, like, that's you're you're absolutely right. Yes. But I'm just saying that, like, I don't know that his stance is quite as in total as he means it to be. I think you could make uh, highbrow, more gothic, for lack of a better word, horror movies. You with could pepper in a little bit of this stuff. You don't have to go as full bore. You as could, like, but you're not going to make a twenty time return on your investment. That and I, and that's true. Uh, even though Ghost Story made more money, is com- higher com- budget compared to its budget, it probably it's didn't make Fred Astaire in it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like it had like the like. I guarantee they paid those three actors more, the three old guys in the Chowder Society, more than the budget of Friday the Thirteenth. That's a good point. You're smart sometimes. I saw, I have a big head for it. It's not all skull. That's a lot skull though. <laughs> all right, we'll continue our talk about Steve Miner's direction as necessary. But in the meantime, let's move on to one of the most popular characters from the entire Friday the Thirteenth series. We have Amy Steele as Jenny Fields. Thirteen episodes of the powers of Matthew Starr. Twelve episodes. Or for love and honor, uh, but aside from part two, she's best known from a movie that I really like, but has been reviled for years. April Fool's Day. It's, it's, it's the episode of the of the podcast. Brandon's like, I just don't think we can make a good episode. Bro, it's a great movie, but once you know the twist, it's just he made it. Brandon couldn't make it a good episode for the show. I think there's a lot to talk about, but it's also one of those things where, like, once you know the twist, it's like, you know, like, what is there really to discuss that hasn't been discussed Hey, already? isn't that uh, the guy, for the bully from Back to the Future? And that's about it. Yeah. Deborah Foreman was fucking hot, though. Oh, fuck yeah. So was, so was Amy Steele. The character of Jenny was a loving homage to Virginia Fields, who was the production designer on the first two movies, but... The reverence for Amy actually goes way deeper than that because the cast and crew absolutely loved her. They loved her so much that the role of Jenny was written, like, rewritten to be more tailored to Amy. Co-producer Dennis Murphy had this to say. Her character was written for her, and it was written so well. She was very, very well liked by the cast and crew. So... Amy Steele, the human being, is well-loved, and the character of Jenny is heralded as perhaps the strongest final girl of the series. Question, is Jenny the best final girl of the series, and what qualifies, like, what qualities do a final girl need to have in, specifically in the Friday the 13th series? Specifically in Friday the 13th, this is, like, you have her and, uh, the bitch from part five who is strong and fights Melanie back. Melanie Kinnaman. But Virginia Steele's the goat. Like you got it. Like she, she's funny. Virginia Steele. You mean uh, Virginia Steele? Uh, Jenny Fields. Jenny, F- <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Amy Steele is the motherfucking goat. <laughs> she is the most well-rounded character as a person. She's funny. 
she's not the virginal uh, chick from the person. You know, she likes to fuck. Well, she doesn't fuck on screen, but she's not averse to it. She's had dick. Yes, but also Adrian in part one, uh, Adrian King's character. Yeah. It's it's implied that her and um, it's implied uh, short that shorts are dicking down on like I, like they've touched each other over clothes. They have such big virgin energy. Well, this chick. I mean, she comes in. She's got a sense of like she's she had, she uses the psychology background she has. Like she fights the hardest. I mean, she's the goat of the women final girls in the series. Because then you have a psychic bitch and some other bitch who's who has a memory of him as a child and he floods himself with toxic waste in part eight. Come on, no, I can't wait to do part. Sammy Steele, like like for I, for final girl, she's the goat in this series. Because then other than that, it's Tommy Jarvis. I agree. It's number one as far as final girls. It's absolutely yes. it's absolutely her and. With the exception of Dana Kimmel in part three, they're all blondes. I guess you could argue in part um, part eight that she's a little more star- strawberry, strawberry blonde. But they're generally always blondes. Why? Why is that? Why is that a slash? Eight, the eighties had the the eighties blondes and big tits, and they didn't necessarily have that both. But like blondes had more Marilyn Monroe. You can probably pin it back to Marilyn Monroe as like the first mass market across the board spectrum sex uh, symbol in America. There were other like silent movie stars in thirties, but like Marilyn Monroe had blonde hair and big tits. And that's just became like a shorthand for sexy. Yeah, but she, in the minds no, of America. I, I, I agree with you, but she was also kind of portrayed as ditzy and, you know, and that a lot of fucking horror bitches are ditzy, but Jenny is not. Jenny's she, not. She, she is, is that the what, best. She's the most completed female character, and I'm even putting her up against just as a character, a final girl, as the chick in part six, who I love more because she's awesome. It's gonna be Jennifer Cook, who plays Jennifer Megan. Megan likes to fuck too, but she's Harry more. Turn. She's 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 stuck in the rebellious sheriff's daughter phase in her life. Amy Steele in this movie is like she's a person, like she's you know. I, She's passed all her bullshit. She's a good adult. I think there's a fine line in how a final girl should be written. The character has to be vulnerable, but not weak. Uh, Jenny is terrified. She's brutalized and tortured, but she ultimately survives because she's written to be as competent. Yes. That goes a long way, actually. Amy had this to say about the character of Jenny. To know that I did one of these films where they get all these women in there and they're so vulnerable and to be the one that people think was strong and intelligent, it just feels good. As strong character, as strong as a character as Jenny is, um, she's still terrified of Jason, understandably. Uh, so the real question is, who scared her more? Is it Jason or the rat? So let me set the stage. No. Jenny is hiding from Jason under one of the bunk beds where she is visited by a big-ass pesky rat where we see a puddle of urine pour <coughs> from under the bunk this is one of the most debated puddles of piss in movie history. So did Jenny piss or is it the rat? Oh, no. Jenny definitely pissed. And I'm going to give her a pass on this because she's already dodging a killer. I don't think she fears the rat more than Jason, but you're already in the highest level stress situation you can. And then it's just to uh, quote Spinal Tap, it goes to 11. It's a straw that breaks yeah, the camel's Exactly. Back. So that's definitely her piss. I've seen rat piss. 
Rat piss is like a the maybe like it might be a puddle the size of a fifty cent piece. If if that rat pissed that much, that's then, half its body's mass. Yeah, it, the thing would uh, shrunk would have shrunk uh, considerably after the fact. So and it's also one of the most really genuinely like fucked up like oh god scenes in the whole franchise of Rat Thirteen. This poor woman chasing the base so much that it just comes to a point where she's pissing herself. In the fear. sound like the the score cuts out. It's it's, it's meant to punch you really yeah, hard right there. Fucking is a but shit. Amy herself doesn't seem to know. She had this to say. Here I am under the bed and Jason's walking around and I'm scared to death. And all of a sudden a rat comes right in front of my face. I thought she was so scared she peed her pants. Maybe it was the rat. I don't know. Now, in the strangest case of life imitating art, Amy and Jenny also share a career path of child psychology. This culminates with Jenny mentally manipulating Jason with the sweater of Mrs. Voorhees. So, this, I I really like this aspect of the movie because it's it's so much different than oh, yeah. like a, a standard slasher movie. But at the same time, I don't know how you get internally the logic to think to do this i think it's i I, i've actually thought of this you're in desperation mode you've heard the legend so you kind of maybe know his backstory you've seen he's completely fucking unhinged and you have no options this doesn't work she's fucking that maybe he can help maybe he won't want to get blood on his mama's sweater at the very least i'm gonna shoot my shot well, I I kind of wish this had been the true end. Like, she just stayed like uh, little Tommy Jarvis, Corey Feldman in part four, and just kept hacking him, like, for three minutes till the credits roll. I mean, there's a good little jump stare and a cool makeup effect later. But, like, no, I get it. Now, like, they're not reaching that far out. She has some psychological, she knows there's abnormal psychology. He has a shrine. She blocks the way. There, it's. I'm not saying it's definitely logical and scientific and smart, but in a desperate no-win situation, she took like the only option she had. I. She definitely has lice from that sweater, though. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and scabies. Scabies. That's what I meant to say. Chiggers. She's like it's all bad. <laughs> so, they do a similar thing in the final chapter with Corey Feldman. And I, we love the final That's the chapter. greatest slasher sequel of all time, as we have and decided. Where this movie appeals to like, hey, this is mother telling you what to do. It's a child appealing to him like, I am the representation of what you were before your... Hey, look at me. Yeah. It's your inner child. So, of the two, I, I think this makes more logical sense because she has a child psychology background. You can make the yeah. leap of logic... In final chapter, it's just one of those things I just kind of accept because it's Corey Feldman. It's Corey Feldman. And and he might have a weird sex cult now that's really sad and exploited it, but that is a great movie. He plays concerts in Dollar General parking lots. And warehouses. Have you seen the one of his wife's uh, keyboard solo? She's she's fantastic. She's the songbird of her generation. Look that big clip up. <laughs> but uh, no, like I, I've always liked... That version, part two's ending a little better than like the Corey. I get the Corey Feldman too again. He's going different. But in my head, my internal dialogue that Jason is like, what the fuck? 
it's not a oh it's me and all this like I just hear it like it's basically it's always kind of amused me to think that Jason is just so confused he does it like what the fuck is going on here <laughs> why is this happening and then he's like killed by Corey all right, uh, Amy was inexperienced at the time of shooting this scene, and you know Jason's stuntman Steve Dash paid for it. Oh uh, yeah, uh, paid for her inexperience when he she nearly chopped his finger off in a stunt going awry. Amy had this to say: "I had the machete behind my back, and I'm instructed to pull the machete up. And just as Mrs. Voorhees' uh, face is revealed, he's supposed to bring up the pickaxe, and that's when I bring the machete down. I got really anxious." And I brought the machete down. So, um, low-budget filmmaking. And even though, like, I guess technically this is a studio movie, they're, they're the watchful It's at the eye. outskirts of the studio system. Yeah, I mean, this is like a half a step up from snuff porn in, in, in terms of, like, safety. Yeah. You know, because there would be none. There's a whole lot of fucked up shit on this set. Yeah, so... I, if you believe all the stories... You're, you're, we're, I guess we're lucky that the, this wasn't worse than what it could have been. He came, like, from what I hear, he went to the hospital with the machete in his shoulder as a gag. Like, that, I've, I've listened to a couple of interviews from that, like, uh, stuntman. He, he's a character. Uh, Amy had this to say about, about oh. what you're referring to. He goes to the hospital. He had the machete through his chest, and that's the problem. Yeah. Machete. Or something. He walks into the emergency room and they're like, oh my God. <laughs> so thankfully no one was seriously injured, but he had to get some stitches in his finger. And I got to admit, it it, it kind of turns out funny. In the, the whole- Can you imagine going with a machete in your shoulder and holding up your finger and like, yeah, I cut myself. That's fucking comedic genius. I want to tell a personal story. This hap- My day job, I work in a year-round haunted house. Right before I started there, we had two actors who were escorting a drunken asshole out of the group. This guy and his girlfriend, they had been drinking and they were like roughing up the actors and stuff. So they were justified in taking them out. This guy had a six pack of beer bottles in his wife's like purse so they, they take him out and he gets this beer bottle and he smashes it over uh, my friend Matt's head. Now, Matt, who at the time was in pretty good shape, and was a professional wrestler on the side. He doesn't sell oh, it. Oh, yeah. So he's like bleeding from the head and he's already wearing gore makeup. So it, it just <laughs> it, it was almost like a, mo- a part of these movies where like Jason just kicks gets kicked in the third gear. Anyways. When the cops show up and the EMTs show up and they're like, holy fuck, what did you, we're getting here right now. So that, that very well could happen to just about anybody. Um, but it is a comical thing. That's to like, hilarious. I don't need you to fix this wound. I painted on my face, fix the one in the back of my head that's currently bleeding. So, uh, I can get a feel for people working in the ER department yeah. because God knows they probably see some crazy shit like Boba Fett action figures shoved up your rectum and uh, well know. that's just you know sexy this is the fun uh, you can't watch the Hollywood uh, holiday special without doing that <laughs> okay uh, with Jenny's uh, surviving the events of part two especially when you consider how popular she was it's strange that she didn't return for part three so just so we're clear there was uh, the plan and the script was written that would have had Jenny being pursued by Jason while in the hospital, but she turned it down. Amy had this to say, when I finished filming part two, I was trashed. I was exhausted, but that's not why I didn't do part three. 
I wanted to be taken seriously as an actress. At the time, there was still a stigma associated with horror movies. Jamie Lee Curtis changed that, but the roles were limited. It was mostly about screaming, I regret not doing the third film. It's one of my biggest regrets. So this is a two-part question. Number one, should the character of Jenny return for part three? And what do you think about the idea about the setting of a hospital? Uh, Halloween, okay, second part first. No, that's Halloween too. That came out that year. No. Uh, third part or first part second. I would love to see her back, but like she, like I think because I'd seen her in other stuff before I saw this, like, cause I'd seen her in like TV shit and other things before I saw part two. I'm like, oh, it's like a real actress in this movie. And cause the whole stigma of horror shit was even up through when I was watching it. So I get why she didn't, but absolutely do not put this in a fucking ho- uh, hospital after Halloween 2. We we do kind of get the hospital stuff in Final Chapter, albeit That's trun- all- truncated. Yes. I mean, we get the perfect amount of hospital. Yeah, like a minute at the end. <laughs> Don't set the whole fucking movie like Halloween 2. Because oh, Halloween was... 2 was chasing to catch up to Friday the 13th, and then they would have gone back around the bend to be trying to chase to catch up to Halloween 2. It's like a whole running in circles shit. Yeah, I no, I agree. They... He should have went to New York in part three. <laughs> and hell in part four. Yes. And space. Space in part five. And then, and then come back, and he goes to a different state. Like, and then A24 uh, takes him over, and they're real serious, introspective. You know what's like, funny about that? The the series they're making for Peacock, Brian Fuller, is being produced by A24. Isn't that, like, mind-blowing? That is fucking crazy. We're, oh. It's still got a lot to live up to Friday the 13th, the TV series. I think it's the first, especially the first season. That show gave me nightmares as a kid. I had a dream I lost my eyes at the dinner table because of like the Amish or some kind of religious thing with glasses. I don't even remember the episode. I just remember vague broad strokes. It gave me nightmares. It's a good show. Doesn't deserve to have the name Friday the 13th associated with it because no. it probably hurt the show more than There should have been like three episodes about the hockey master if they're going to do it like they that. They were going to do that and it, they canceled the show. That's that should have been the first thing that. Anyway, let's, let's not continue. So, uh, Amy. Hasn't made a full-fledged return to the series, unfortunately, but the series has just wanted her back so bad that she has lent her voice to a couple of fan films. Uh, one made by her buddy Bobby Heckman, who did uh, Victim No More. You get to hear her on a you know, phone call, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a nice little nod, but she's a fixture at horror conventions. Oh, yeah. I've never had the chance to meet her. She's she's on my you know bucket list of people because I, as a kid, just from a... I'm not a huge guy. I, blondes are not my thing. I don't know what it is about her. But it just works for me. She's a real and approachable person as she, a character. She seems like, sweet, but she has an edge to her at yeah. the same time. She's not the goody-goody, but she's not like, you know, she's not like a Quigley. Who, Nobody don't get, is. Don't get me wrong. That would Speaking been, of blondes. That's that's the that's number one. I hear that name, I get erect. I think about her bent over with those pink panties and shoving a lipstick tube into her boobie. I think about horror aerobics. I got that or, pre-ordered, by the way, on Blu-ray. No oh, joke. shit. No joke. That's not even a fucking joke. <laughs> All right. As loved as Amy Steele is as Jenny, the next point of topic is also well-loved in the Friday the 13th fandom. We have John Fury as Paul. 
A lot of television, Chips, The Waltons, Rounding Steel, Murder, She Wrote, a reoccurring role in Days of Her Lives, and designing women with Annie Potts, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. You're welcome. Yes. Now, Thank often, you. Oftentimes, the male leads of slasher movies aren't written to be anything more than just another person to add to the body count, and the character of Paul isn't masterfully written by any means, but I do think John Fury crafted a character from beyond, uh, far beyond, like, what would simply be on the screen. Again, he's not a two-dimensional. He's not the jerk, the douche, or just the nice guy. He's a person. This has probably the best supporting cast outside of Final Chapter. Yeah, I was going to stop. Like, of the non-Part 4 films... This is the best cast of actual characters. I think you like most of these characters for the most part. Uh, Paul had this to say, or sorry, John had this to say about his character of Paul. I was a little older than everybody because I was the head camp counselor. He, you know, thought he was somewhat older. He knew more than these people. He was a little prissy and stuffy or something. I thought that would be kind of a funny thing to do with the character. So this comes from the perspective of like, is it... Is it the script? Is it the director? Or is it the actor? Like, who should, who is it up to to like to flesh a character out? Like, filling in the blanks. I think it, this kind of falls down on screenwriter and director. I think that actor did the best of what he could. Because again, even though he is kind of a very milk toast little bitch. Still kind of likable, and you still like, you know, is he dead or not? What like, you bother to keep thinking about him after his scene, which I think they just meant to. I know I'm skipping way ahead. I think they just meant, oh, he's dead. Let's move on. He's just so forgettable. We don't even have to see it, but he's likable. He and Amy have really good chemistry together. They do, and I think that's one of the saving graces of him from him just not being, you know, a guy in the yeah. movie. But I you know it, it's interesting because. Every movie is different. It's like if you are on a Stanley Kubrick film set. Oh, and, God. Don't be Shelley Duvall. Don't, exactly. Yeah. Do not be Shelley Duvall. Because whatever choices you are making, they're wrong. And he's going to tell you they're wrong until he gets the performance he wants out of you. And then you can look at uh, like Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote Empire Strikes Back. He wrote some of the, the best dialogue for Han, the Han Solo character. It has that line where it's, she says, I love you. And then he's like, I know. And that's, that, that's not... That's not Harrison Ford crafting a character. That's the words yes. on the page, like really uh, bringing a character to life. So there's different aspects of it. And really, I think all three of them should sort of work in tandem. But on lower budgeted movies where like maybe the screenwriters are not as seasoned or, you know. Let's get this straight. This movie came out 10 months after the original so the screenwriting was they weren't trying to craft nuanced characters like we need to get this shit done. So I, I, I'm going to give the actor a lot more credit and his chemistry with Amy Steele because like they, you know, for what they had, like he sold it. Good I, job. I hope they fucked. I hope they fucked in real life. No, I, absolutely. I yeah. hope they're still fucking. I hope her husband's fine with they it. They have like an annual cut. Like they do like a couple swapping because they were kid. They were teens in the seventies, so they're still down with all that that key parties and stuff. So, so they have like a, a an a once a year on the anniversary of the release. He fucks her. She fucks his husband. Well, it's not. It's not John fucking Amy. It's Paul. Paul fuck, fucking yes. Jenny. That's the difference. And her husband dresses like baghead Jason. <laughs> 
uh, and his wife dresses like a brown bra chick, um, titty chick. Yeah, I can't we'll, think of her name. We'll, we'll get to her. I love her, <laughs> Lauren Marie Taylor. Um, I was gonna say uh, her husband dresses like Crazy Ralph. <laughs> you're, you're all there's doomed. A, there's a death curse on this dick. <laughs> I'm gonna murder that pussy. All right. One thing that made clear in the script was the budding romance between Paul and Jenny. Amy had this to say about her and John's on-screen relationship. There's something about the chemistry that we both share, a very similar sense of humor. It's a little bit sarcastic, so we look at each other and kind of laugh. I think that's why it might have worked. I think she's right. I think if you have a relationship in real life without some laughter and cutting up, then it's doomed. That's why, you know, me and my wife get along so well, because she looks at my penis and laughs all the time. No, I'm just playing. She has a sense of humor. Like, she knows I'm saying horrible fucked up shit about her all the time in the podcast, which she doesn't listen to, so... Um, well, then I'll say, what a bitch. You what a, listen, what listen, a bitch. This podcast... I'm going to put it in her butthole. Yeah. And, but, you know, that's why it's like a real... Like, the, the chemistry is good, because it's like a real relationship that in real life would work. They're not just like, oh, I love you. Oh, this. Or, you know, they're not like, you know, it's laughing, cutting up. It's having a good time when you're not just fucking. It's not a Nicholas Sparks novel. Yes, it's not a Nicholas Sparks novel or Twilight. So we get a lot of scenes with Jenny having fun at the expense of Paul. Lots of fun, flirty dialogue. And ultimately, Paul's greatest contribution to the Friday the 13th mythos in the scene where they're all sitting around the bonfire as a kid. I went to summer camp, and for several years, this scene, it it stuck with me, and it scared the shit out of me. I have such nostalgic feelings for sitting around a campfire and telling ghost stories, and it all it's all rooted from this movie. Absolutely. So, did you ever go to camp? I went to church school camp, which, I mean, again, we had the campfires, we had s'mores, but... Is also a lot of Jesus-y bullshit that I, had I gone like a year or two prior to this, I'd have just rolled with and had fun. I was like between 11 and 12. I was less than a year outside of losing my virginity to another church school kid way too young. So I was starting to be the cynical asshole, but we weren't allowed to tell ghost stories at the fucking uh, campfire. You know what they told instead? What? Cautionary hell tales. Well, that's and Seventh-day Adventists weren't even that, like, fire and brimstone, but they did, ooh, this and that. You could go to hell. That's the only, t- which actually Seventh-day Adventists don't believe in an eternal hell. It's a whole thing. Super fucking lame. And I was just old enough to realize how lame it was. As a kid, I went to camp. I went to Boy Scout camp uh, for several years. Did you have an Alec Baldwin-like uh, camp counselor? No, there was no Camille Canteen boy. <laughs> there was none of that going on. Thankfully, I'm very, I'm very happy that my childhood maybe was more sexy enough. You're right. I wasn't. I really should have stepped up my game. I wore my shorts were too long. My my I didn't show off my ass crack enough. Okay, really, really. let's move on. This is getting too. Oh God. But yeah, telling ghost stories around the campfire that was some of the best memories I have in life. Now, the best ghost story I ever heard was not at camp, but my childhood best friend, Josh Basinger, his parents, they were like big on like these to-do like get-togethers where like we're going to camp out in the yard and, you know, roast marshmallows around a campfire and stuff. And his dad, Charlie Basinger, told us this story 
that to this day uh, will never leave my mind because it was so impactful on me. And I don't remember the the setup, but the but the payoff was that there was a head rolling down a hill, and then when it stopped rolling, its eyes opened. Now I stayed up all night because I was freaked the fuck out. I couldn't sleep in the tent, so I go home and I stay up entirely the next day, and then I get into my bed on Mohawk, 806 Mohawk, Morristown, Tennessee. And our house, uh, I'm on, it was sort of like uh, half ground level. You know, it's, like, Yeah, it's a split level that's built into the hill. Exactly. And it goes down. I know Mohawk. I know right where you're talking about. So That's a great... <laughs> I, I had to sleep with my back to the window because I was terrified that if I opened my eyes, there was going to be a head right there. So that stayed with me for years, and even though it didn't come with camp from camp, the the around campfire the, tale, the campfire life. tales, man, that's just so nostalgic. It's a good to thing me. your evil granny didn't hear about you hearing that story. Shoot a bought a fake severed head just to set outside your window to traumatize you. You know what's fucked up? She actually did something like that to me when I was a kid. <laughs> Do you remember back in the day when people would take? Uh, leaves and would make like uh, yeah, dummies like to dummy, put on. Yeah, to they still on. do that now. Well, yes. it was more common back then. But she bought like a, a Halloween mask from you know Walmart or whatever, and it scared the fuck out of me. And like I wouldn't go around the front of the house because I was so terrified. And then one night there was a like a chair sitting next to my bed <laughs> in her house, and she That's just so evil. she put the fucking head right there, and I screamed. And I if I, if I could have jumped out the window, we're second story, yeah. I would have done it. Like I would have, I would have been dead. Oh, damn, what a bitch! Yeah, fuck you, mamma. <sighs> Man, I asked, is she your bi- like mom or dad's? Is my my dad's the uh, biological? Yeah. Oh well, fuck him too. Yeah, they're, they're that's why they're so tainted. They're all they're all turd people. Yeah, that's the <laughs> anyway. nice, that's a nice way of putting it. All right, so one issue with this scene and with the campfire scene in the movie as a whole they're not at Kent Crystal Lake uh, they're at Packenack Lodge which is across the lake do you think the change of location is a detriment to the movie because like I don't know like, it's still no I don't think it's a detriment I think even five years later hey you remember when all those motherfuckers got killed and hey this is a scene of another murder murder earlier it would have been overly ridiculous to go back to that and try to do it again. I like that it's close by. Like, part three is just on the lake. Part yeah. four is... A, like, going back to the original camp, no, that's, that's just, at this point, fucking ludicrous. There is a little bit of a gray area in the movie, because technically, Pagnac Lodge is like a training place for campers. Now, I believe it's in the movie where they say that, like, eventually campers going to show up. But as, as a kid, I interpreted that as, like, they're learning here, but they're going to go... Oh, I always thought the they lake. were talking about campers. I I never picked up on that. Yeah, so I don't know. I yeah. thought it was basically the same setup as the first one. Like they're just getting there to get things ready and learn how to do their jobs. You know, just more well structured and you know, like run by per- a, people who know what they're doing. And a lot, a lot more of them. No dead snakes. I think it 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 makes sense, but at the same time, when you when you think about this. Like, okay, five years earlier, we had a whole bunch of people get killed, including one decapitated. Um, and then everything that happened the previous years, the, the water being poisoned and, uh, you know, two camp counselors being killed. Do you think, like, is that just, like, 
capitalism. Like, well, we're going to. It should have been like Forrest Green long before part fucking six. (laughs) You might be right. All right. Crystal Lake or no, the impact of the campfire scene was far reaching, not just uh, for the audience, uh, but also for the actors involved. Lauren Marie Taylor, who plays Vicky, had this to say about the scene. I had never been to camp in the country. So while he's doing that monologue, little Lauren Marie Taylor is thinking in her said, ah, for real. Lauren isn't the only one who was in awe of the scene. And in particular, John Fury's delivery of his monologue, Bill Randolph, who plays Jeff, had this to say. The first night that we were there, everybody gathered and everybody made it to the camp. Paul basically scares the shit out of everybody. I think that John did a great job of building the tension then to break with Ted jumping out and scaring everybody. Now, John does a wonderful job of performing that monologue, but I think Fat Tony just might beat him in the acting department. We'll see. I think it's high time we get another Rance recreation. All right, Fat Tony is going to be reading for the role of Paul, and I will be reading for the role of Ted. So, Tony, when you're ready. I don't want to scare anyone, but i got to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old-timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there. Some sort of demented creature surviving in the wilderness, full-grown by now, stalking. Stealing what he needs, living off wild animals and vegetation. Some folks claim they've seen him right in this area. The girl that survived that night at Camp Blood that Friday the 13th? She claims she shot, she saw him. She disappeared two months later, vanished. Blood was everywhere. No one knows what happened to her. Legend has it that Jason saw his mother beheaded that night. And he took his revenge. A revenge that he'll continue to seek if anyone ever enters his wilderness again. And by now, I guess you all know we're here. We're the first to return. Five years. Five long years he's been dormant. And he's hungry. Jason's out there watching. Always on the prowl for intruders. Waiting to kill. Waiting to devour. Thirsty for young blood. Uh. (laughs) all right all right we're gonna take a commercial break and when we come back we'll be talking about crystal lake's least favorite campers so stay tuned next generation wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star-studded professional wrestlers from around the world Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW Live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. Follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN. Welcome back, Rant Army. We have so many likable characters and good performances, it's almost sad to see some of our cast meet their bitter end. But if you gotta go, getting carved up by Mrs. Voorhees' baby boy ain't too shabby. There's just one problem. Who in the hell is Jason in this movie? It's not an easy question to answer, but we're gonna try our damnedest. So, 
There are two men officially credited as Jason in part two, but the role was actually played by five different people. We're going to break that down. Can I give my one little quiz thing that I know? Because it's actually in order the first one. Right. Pop, pop, <gasps> pop it in when it is appropriate. Okay. First up, we have Jerry Wallace as Jason. Jerry was a production assistant on part two, and his claim to fame is that he is he's Jason when Vicky is killed. We have Ellen Lutter as Jason. Say what you guys she's, say. She's the legs in the opening scene when he's going to kill at the beginning of the movie. She's the only woman to ever play Jason Voorhees. True. That was the little trivia note I knew. I, I salute you, sir, for your uh, ability to pick soak up in, random information, soak up information, and bring it to the podcast. We have Carl Fullerton as Jason. Now, Carl was the special effects artist on part two and stood in for Jason during the scenes where Jeff and Sandra get skewered while screwing, screwing, skewered, skewered while screwing. We have uh, Steve Dash as Jason, well-known stuntman who worked on such things as Night Shift, FX, Nine and a Half Weeks, but most importantly was William Atherton's stunt double on Ghostbusters. You just got busted again. Hell yes, directly. There wasn't even like a... A, a route you had to take. That's a direct connection. In doing research for this, that was probably the most like holy fuck moment because like I know a lot about Ghostbusters, but I did not know that. So it's cool to learn new things that you Always. don't know before, especially about something that I know like the back of my hand. Uh, Steve has had an interesting career uh, working as an actor. Uh, he was the in the jazz singer with Neil Diamond, Alone in the Dark, which was directed by Jack Shoulder, who's been in the podcast before. He was uh, in the excellent Abel Ferreira vigilante movie, Miss 45. That's, Hell yes, I that movie fucking rules. I love that movie. Steve, unfortunately, has passed away, but was able to come back to the Friday the 13th franchise towards the end of his life, playing the sheriff in Friday the 13th Vengeance. And he worked, got to work with our good buddy Mick Strawn because he did the uh, production design yeah. on that. If you see Jason with a sack on his head, chances are that's Steve in the costume. And last up, we have Warrington Gillette as Jason. Now, Warrington doesn't have a lot of credits, but he did have a role in Penny Dreadful. That would be the Penny Dreadful, uh, n- the movie, yeah, not, not the television the good series. Good new show that's awesome and amazing. Uh, however, he did get to work with Betsy Palmer on that project, so that's a yeah. little nice little crossover. Anytime you see Jason unmasked, that's Warrington, which is basically the final scene. Now he did like, what, two weeks before he quit? We'll, we'll get to that. Okay. We're going to focus our discussion mostly on Stephen Warrington, uh, because that seems to be the, the arguing point. So, let's start with Warrington. Warrington initially auditioned for another role, but... And a controversial twist was offered the role of Jason. Warrington had this to say about being cast as Jason. We like you for this counselor role. I guess this role uh, that ultimately John Fury got. So then they say, would you like to be Jason? Well, sure. Yeah, I'd love to do anything you want me to do. Now, the million dollar question then becomes, why was he cast as Jason? And I suppose that that's going to come down to a couple of factors. Number one, 
Warrington is 6'1", so he's the right size for the character. Number two, Warrington had a quote-unquote background as a stuntman. A Hollywood stunt academy or something like that. He bullshitted. Warrington's big scene is the literal jump scare through the window. He had this to say about the scene. The scene where Jason comes careening through the window. Look, you thought he was dead, and it's a... Greatest shock. They built a platform outside the house. The platform was probably four feet, so we coordinated how many steps it takes. One, two, three, bah! Through the window. Then this time in my life, I was not a well-seasoned stuntman. So this was the first time I ever jumped through a window. Okay, before we get into the many controversies, let's talk about this scene. So... What do you think about the jump through the window? I mean, I like it. It's a neat little thing. I, I definitely, it's not as effective as little baby Jason in the first one. And I don't want to shit on this too bad because I do love the movie. Third one, the third post, you know, Jason defeating Jason jump scare is so cheesy that, and I kind of saw them all in a mishmash. So I probably saw this one after three. It's effective enough. I, I mean, know it's a rough shoot. As a jump scare, I think it is perfectly fine. As the punctuation to an ending, it is sort of in line with what they do in the first movie. They do retread the idea a little too much, especially by the time you get to part three. Third like, oh, one jumps a shark with you know, Mama. Let's. Yeah. It's not even. It's not even the what they're doing. It's just that they're doing it basically the same yeah. way again. So. <sighs> Do you think it was a good idea, ultimately, even though it is successful as a jump scare, to just kind of redo the ending of part one? Could there have been a different ending that would have been better? The Okay, let me rephrase that. What if they had just ended the movie with the stuff in the shack, and then you had uh, maybe had Jenny and Paul... Uh, you know, some kind of denouement. Yeah, I think that would have made a, a, a um more logical cinematic sense. But this is a slasher. You gotta give them what you gotta give the crowds what they want. So I kind of, even though I think it would have been better without it, as a Forty-two-year-old cinema snob, you know, not cinema snob. That's that's Brad. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, but like you know, as a as a person who appreciates film for film, but as you know, a little dumb teenage horror fan. No, I fucking love it. The scene is infamous both in terms of its cinematic quality, but also for the production nightmare it caused. In Warrington's <laughs> quote, he mentioned that he was not a well-seasoned stuntman. Ultimately, Warrington would leave the role, and in my research, I found. Nothing but contradicting statements uh, if he quit or if he was fired uh, because of him representing misrepresenting his credentials. So Warrington is, he either quits or is fired, and Steve Dash is asked to take over. He had this to say. I got a call from Cliff Cundy, who happened to be the stunt coordinator on Friday the 13th Part 2, and he had called and said, Listen, I'm up here in Connecticut doing this film, and the guy they hired to play Jason can't do his own stunts. We get a big problem. He says... Can you get up to Kent, Connecticut? Now, the recasting understandably caused a lot of confusion on set. John Fury had this to say about the controversy. I could never figure out the deal with Jason. They had a guy for a while. His name was Warrington, and then he didn't seem like it was doing well, or he didn't want to do stunts or something. He didn't stay for the whole movie. Bill Randolph, who plays Jeff, shared uh, John's confusion on the matter. He had this to say. 
we knew that there was stuff going on about Warrington and Steve and in terms of who was doing what. However, Lauren Marie Taylor, who plays Vicky, has been quoted saying, Warrington Gillette was my Jason. Now, I swear I'm going somewhere with this, so please stick with me. However, from what I told you earlier, we know this isn't the case specifically to what Lauren is saying here because production assistant Jerry Wallace was the Jason in her death scene. Yes. So based off the available information that we have to work with, it would seem to be evident that Warrington's scope on the film was limited to say the least. So for the past 40 years, uh, he has been taking credit for a role that he may or may not should. So let's just... Let's uh let's discuss that. Like, how much of a film do you need to be in before you can, can rightfully claim more than oh. one major jump scare? That's technically a dream sequence. And I didn't know about any of this until like there was some convention coming up where you were supposed to. And you even told me this was well before the podcast started. You're like, oh, well, really? And you kind of laid it down. Um, but I, I I hate to contradict you. I was listening to something today. On the way up, it was, you know, just a rehash. It's like a kill count on YouTube, you know, to go through the kills so I could get my list right. And there is an audio clip I heard of the the thing, you the Vicky quote. Yes. That was like Amy Steele, like her saying that that was my Jason, not her. Like, there's an audio clip I heard of it because they talked about the, the, the scene in that and how hard it was to shoot, and they go through that, but they, they play little old audio clips. Okay, well, that would make sense. That would make sense because that is her, and they had a horrible shoot. Like, she got hurt jumping through the window. They fucked it up, so I think it's just a misattribution in no, some no, no, of the material. No, no, no. I literally saw a video of oh. her saying this. So she, she said that. She's ripping off things, too. Well, no, again, I'm, I mean, I'm going to stop a, you because I might be wrong, and this is rare, but you're another man, so I can admit that I'm wrong to you. <laughs> I live in a house full of women. I'm always I wrong. Mean, but no, like maybe... I'm, it's 40, it was 40 years ago, so people's memory could be absolutely incorrect about things. So let's just say yeah, that... like they both said it. That they both could have said it, and, and, and obviously one of them... Makes sense. D- definitely makes sense, and the other one more than likely is just misremembering things. Or she blew him in a car and that's, oh, you're my Jason. Like, you know. Well, she was nice enough she to appear on this podcast. Oh, yeah, so, no, never mind. So, um, if you blew him... Um, no, her real her real, <laughs> her real, real movie romantic story was sadder and sweeter than that. Yeah, she seems like a really nice lady. We love you, Lauren. We'll talk about her a little yes. later. Um, now, I wasn't there and I know it's not clear-cut as some people would like to make it out to be, but the big issue people have with Warrington, in particularly Steve Dash, is that he signs pictures and paraphernalia from the movie where he did not appear, as in, like, pictures of Back him head. in the mask. Yeah. I don't think that would be an issue if there's a distinction of, like, I am Jason from this scene... But it's probably like it's easier to get booked. It's like, well, I was just Jason, you know. It's, yeah, it's I can't not, hate on a man for you're, hustling. You're not. You're misrepresenting, but at the same time, it's sort of like a, a gray area because I mean, he did play Jason. Yeah. In in part two, and of, that was a picture from part two. One of the more memorable scenes of the movie. Very memorable. But but if he signed, I love Ari. Ari from part one. Ari will sign. Anything you put in front of him, your shit, yeah. and 
so sometimes you'll see like hockey mask with like his autograph on there. And I'm thinking like, number one, I don't blame him for doing that. But like, why would, why would someone want that? Because he never wore the hockey mask. He was the little kid, Jason. So I, I think it's a buyer beware kind of situation at the same time. Too. Like know, know what you're getting into. So I can't entirely hate Warrington for doing this, but for, for years, Steve, was not getting the credit that he obviously deserved in playing. I mean, he's the one that got hurt. Yeah. Well, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. He did. <laughs> he literally bled for the movie. And there's another incident where he fell on a pickaxe <laughs> uh, while tripping. And then when he puts the pitchfork through the door, he hurt his wrist because it hadn't probably properly been rigged enough to like go through easy. So, I mean, he got, he got messed up during this. Well, I mean, that's the, the folly of being a, a stuntman and, it, it's kind of interesting that like they usually hire stuntmen for these roles and they they don't treat them as actors and yeah. you know they they get kind of thrown by the wayside and us as horror fans we sort of embrace them as like well they're the one who did it exactly so like, I, Kane Hodder you know every horror fan with the salt worships that man as they should yeah and I think that I mean you got to give. Uh, Steve Dash the credit he deserves because he did the majority of the movie. Like if you see him running around with that bag on his head blindly, because the aisle <laughs> kept flapping. That's true. So ultimately, if you have to choose, like, what do you think? Is it? Is it? If I have to come down hard, Steve, one, Steve, Steve, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you uh, because of. This controversy, Steve has spent basically the past 40 years prior to his death trying to get the proper recognition of having played Jason. He had this to say, he got all the hoopla for everything I did. Cliff Cunney, the store coordinator, said to me, you're the guy that was the Jason. Tell your story. You did all the work. So it sucks because he dies, but... Towards the end of his life, he did kind of get the recognition that he deserved. It's just kind of sad that, like, I'm going to use Brian Bremer as an example. You know, our, our buddy Brian Bremer, who in the 80s and early 90s made these movies that people still like and still talk about. But it took, you know, 30 years for, like, him to realize that there was a crowd out there of people who yeah. love him for that. And that that's kind of sad because... The world we live in sucks. It is a, a hellscape of bad-intentioned nonsense. Uh, yes. And whatever happiness and love you can find, like we should be putting more of that out into the world. So to know that Steve didn't get to feel the love that people and reverence, she, yes. that, that kind of makes me sad. But I'm glad that he got to experience that before he passed away. Yes. So, okay, now that we have all this settled uh, let's talk about jason's aesthetic in part two namely the mask now first of all this mask is a pillowcase it's not a potato sack that's yes. a huge misconception it's been incorrectly identified for years so sack head or hockey mask hockey mask don't even ask me that i think it all comes down to perspective hockey mask is the identifiable mark of the character but if you're talking about which is scarier I'm gonna say the I'm gonna say the sack is scarier. I'm gonna push back with one of the best scenes in part three when you just see 
fully masked Jason having killed Shelly come around the corner on the dock under that light. That's fucking terrifying. And he shoots Vera in the Yeah, with the, the eye fucking with the uh spear spear gun. gun. That's so no, I still prefer it both for for all the reasons. I don't dis but I also saw the town that dreaded sundown before I saw this. So I had an earlier frame of reference from what they were inspired by. Cause they just had to fucking do it. They needed a mask. It was the, let's, let's table that for just a second. Okay. So reportedly the pillowcase was the idea of costume designer, Ellen Lutter, co-producer, 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 Dennis Murphy had this to say about the mask. The costume designer was the one who brought us the pillowcase to cover Jason. I didn't like it at the time, but I know why it was chosen. It was chosen because it was an artifact that would be readily available. This was the bridge to the hockey mask, which became the icon, and it's a great icon. Now, fans, understandably, are divided on this mask, with some going as far to saying it's a complete ripoff of the excellent Charles B. Pierce film, The Talented Dreaded Sunday. Well, let's not say excellent. It's it's memorable. I'm going to say it's excellent for the intended purpose. (laughs) Okay. I really like it. But it's no, it's it's not like it's not amazing film like I'm uh, trombone like, like, like being there is a great yes. film. It's a great film in its yeah genre. for what it was uh, yeah. So do you think this similarity leads to the implication uh, of the hockey mask of the implementation of the hockey mask? Like basically, like okay, people were saying this is a ripoff. So that's yeah, they had we- to find something else. Absolutely, well, I'm glad they didn't go with his like clear. Shelly's other mask. I wonder if that was a debate in pre-production for part three. Like, you know, he had the hockey mask. He had the one mask he wears as a killer when he's going up. Yeah. A, I'm really glad they went with the hockey mask. I mean, obviously, of, of those, it, it it stuck. And it, it, yes, and it's, an the, I, it's the, fucking the, iconic. The merchandising juggernaut that it is. is Every episode they, of this podcast has a Masks by Lance commercial. That's true. <laughs> Make it premium. Friday the 13th mask. For Lance McKinney. Come on down and get one. Down here, Tennessee. Go and get one now. Every episode. So, I mean, obviously, it's the most iconic. You know. (sighs) Hipster. I love, I love the, the. The, I love that there's an evolution of the series, and yeah. I think that's what makes the 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 transition from Sackhead to Hockey Mask work. When they bring him back, the hockey mask needs to be broken for the next when they do it, and he needs to find one of those eyes wide shut sex masks, and that can be his next. Sure, <laughs> sure, and th- and that's it's basically he's he's he explores his sexuality. That's that's the movie we need to make. Yes, um, Jason gets his groove back. <laughs> um, the thing is, if they had continued with the sackhead. We maybe would have got three, maybe four movies, but yeah. we wouldn't have ended up with the twelve movies that we currently have, and then a series coming out, and a eventual fan films, fan and, films and, and all that. I think the hockey mask was the secret sauce into like taking this from like a very successful movie to the cultural phenomenon. Yeah, it, it they they went from the. Uh, the windy single to the the baconator in yes. one easy step. Now, another element that is singular to part two is Jason's cabin. Um, I love the cabin, and I really, really hate that it's not in any of the other movies. 
Yeah, the, the only other time they do it is a great idea, is the remake. And that's one thing I liked about the remake. Well, Like, even, he still has a place to he, live. He has a place to live, and it's, you know, that's that underground. It's not as cool as the shitty shack in 2. Like, he's bare, bare elements, just his mom's head and a sweater and some... The the one I know you haven't played the video game, but the Friday Thirteenth video game makes great use of the shack because that's your hub for Jason. Yeah, and it's integral that if you're playing as a counselor and you are going to try and kill Jason, you have to get to the shack. You have to be a female counselor. You have to get the sweater. You have to put it on, and then Tommy Jarvis has to be there to be able. Basically, you have to stun him with the sweater, confuse him, and then his mask has to be off. And then Tommy has to knock him to his knees, and then put the machete in his head. Damn. So there's a nice little series of events. You have know. you ever pulled that off yourself? Yeah. Okay. I've I've, I've, I've almost you spent yeah you spent a lot of time. I've me and Stank Dick Eddie. And uh, even back in the day, Fat Fuck Scott and Titty Flip and Travis, we played the game quite a bit. And me and Stank Dickettie still play it from time to time, even though it's DOA because of Victor Miller and his, yeah. his long-running lawsuit. But that's really the only time that we get to see the cabin in action. Do you think that the cabin could have come back to play in meaningful ways in the some of the sequels? I think it might have been really interesting in maybe six, like with Zombie Jason. What connection would he have? Maybe there's something pulling him there. Or if they'd have just kept it continuate, because part three is kind of just a continuation. Yeah. Three or four. But uh, I think it could it could have been interesting. But again, at the end of the day, these are slasher movies that the, the studios wanted. We got to get kids. We got to get tits. We got to get body count. They they weren't necessarily interested in like oh this cool lore from part two let's bring it back. Well, let's talk about the lore. There's one last controversy in the like, major talking points that we got to discuss, and that's is if Jason has been supernaturally resurrected after his drowning in the lake back in '57, or did Jason survive and grow up as a feral? It's all man dumb. in the woods. It's all dumb, but he definitely from two, three, and four survived. He is a living flesh and blood person. Uh, like, cause you know, there, there's even like signs of him eating and all that. Uh, no, I think it only works in Canon. If he is alive for two, three and four and zombie Jason and six, it doesn't work logically. It, none of it does from part one, but that's why I don't mind them. Yada, yada, yada. And he's okay. alive. I ultimately agree with what you're saying. But there is definitely something paranormal going on in 2, 3, and 4, and, and here's why. There is a, an induced sense of where these people are having a mass psychosis of some kind. Uh, in part 2, which we'll, we'll get to, like, the ending, is it a dream? Well, even part 1, Alice, like, did did that happen with Jason, or is that a dream? In well, part- Mrs. Voorhees read the Necronomicon, too, according to the great comic book, Freddy vs. Jason. I'm just playing. Continue. Well, even the comic, the even the Necronomicon is in Jason goes to hell yeah. as a little end joke. But you have to look at part three, like Dana Kimmel's character. She's having like a, a psychosis kind of thing at the end. So is it that these people have been traumatized to the point where like they they are seeing things that they shouldn't, or is there something supernatural going on in the camp? Again, to fit in with canon and lore, I'm going to say trauma, and then they use the same trope too many times. 
And the true supernatural elements, I don't believe, come until part six when they're just like, fuck it. Let's kill Horshack. I'm I'm going to kind of divide the line. Ultimately, I think their, their intention was Jason was alive until, yeah. until part six. But I in my head canon, Jason was resurrected somehow supernaturally and has grown up and probably killing people here or there that comes in the area, basically, yeah. you know, and he doesn't officially die, die from his resurrection until part six. And at that point, it becomes a killing machine. Yeah. But to me, there's some sort of like ghost revenant kind of thing going on with him because even when he's reanimated, like by part eight, he's fucking teleporting. I know that's just to make things scarier. Yeah. But if you're trying to logically put these things into perspective, I think it makes more sense if you kind of put there some kind of paranormal edge on everything. Well, even if I'm going to push back a little bit to this and still go with the he wasn't resurrected, survived, lived fairly. Because everything you're talking about happens after the mother dies. So maybe the ghost of Mrs. Voorhees haunts the lake and supports her son. Sexy. Sexy. <laughs> Betsy Palmer. Mm. We'll, we'll, we'll get into it a little yeah. more when we get it down the line. But, um, so from the perspective of the people who worked on the film, Jason was not supernatural. D- director Steve Miner had this to say, he's not the living dead. As some rumors have speculated, I think that Jason survived his drowning. So, ultimately, that was the intention. Yes. As ridiculous as that may be. It's all ridiculous. All the way down. Just squint and bear it and move on. All right. Alive or the living dead is beside the point. We came for blood, and the mongoloid with a sack on his head has delivered. And so, let's just check out our victims for Friday the 13th Part 2. All right, number one, this is going to be a long one, so buckle in because we've got a lot of talking points. Two months after the finale of Friday the 13th Part 1, Alice returns to Camp Crystal Lake, the area to confront her trauma, but little does she know that Mrs. Voorhees' baby boy has come for revenge for his mother's beheading. After boobies are not shown, boo, boo. Why even have the shower? Alice makes her way to the kitchen and makes herself a snack when she discovers the decapitated head of Mrs. Voorhees in the refrigerator. She backs away in horror only to have an ice pick plunged into her temple. All right, what do you give this kill? Okay, uh, seven and a half. Like, I like the opening vibe. I like the creep. I like the shit sudden shock. I like the fact that, yeah, we're going to kill the star off the right, even though she didn't even know until she showed up that she wasn't making it past the day. Uh, and, and actually got hurt from a malfunctioning uh, ice pick. And no, I have not seen the restored footage. Well, we'll talk about that real quick. I'll give them, I gave this a 5 out of 10. I think the kill is fine, but considering how important Alice was in the previous movie, her death feels anticlimactic. So I'm biased in terms of my attachment to the character. The killing of itself is fine. However, the uncut version, which is on the glorious Scream I've Factory. i the images of it. It look, looks cool. It's great. You see it go through her temple, and it goes through her cheekbone and th- like out her nose. It, it's great. If that had been in the movie, I think we would be talking about the f- effects a lot more favorably than we. But weirdly we enough, I don't think that would have killed her. Just fucked up her sinuses. Okay, <laughs> here's the thing. We'll get to that. Okay. Um, there's a huge debate amongst Friday Thirteenth fan fans about Alice's death, and in some case of her her involvement in part two at all. Did Alice's character deserve better than to be killed so quickly? Absolutely. 
I agree. I personally wouldn't have killed her off, at least not in the beginning of the film. I think there's a way to incorporate her into the story without detracting from Jenny and Paul, their whole, whole thing. You keep the setup the same, minus like the five-year jump, and you could have, like, pepper her throughout the story and then have our principal characters, like, meet up at that bar. And that's that's your point where, okay, shit's going down, we got to get back there. Yeah. Um, third act would basically play out the same and Alice would die a more impactful death. That's my, that's my, uh, rewriting of history. Alice is once again played by Adrian King and she has been very outspoken about her death in the movie and has even come around to the notion that Alice isn't dead at all. She had this to say. So here's the coolest thing. Alice isn't dead at all. Alice could still come back. There are some clues in the top 15 minutes of part two to the point that it's all being Alice's dream within a dream. Okay, so is this an instance of another Friday the 13th hallucination, or is she just grasping at straws? She's grasping at straws, but she grasped at the wrong one. Had the unaltered version uh, been released theatrically, she could have had a leg to stand on, but she's dead. She just, she got done dirty and got a horrible stalking and, you know, stalker out of all this. Ended up with a gun to her head and traumatized. She deserved better, but that character's dead as fuck. You even see her body in Jason's shack. It's like one of the bodies is like up, basically up yeah. against the thing. But then again, when when does when does the dream begin? Like who? It's there's a lot of things. Here's here's the modern interpretation, at least what they're planning to do going forward with this Crystal Lake series for Peacock. Okay, um, they're going to somehow incorporate her in there. Is she going to be playing the same character? Or is there? Are they going to you know just throw her a bone and give her a roll? Alice got stabbed, but she survived and maybe went to witness relocation or or whatever. But in the prologue, well, not the prologue, but when Paul sits around the thing that you read in our rants recreation, yeah. he clearly states that she died. So she I, did. I don't know that. I I'm, well, he clearly states that her body was missing and there was blood everywhere. So he really doesn't. I guess that's true. But then they find it in there. So maybe he seated that and they're having a mass delusion. Okay, we're not going to look too much at the logic of this. We're going to move on. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we move on, we got to take a step back and talk about some of the strange things in the beginning of the movie because there are a few misconception uh, misconceptions plural. Misconception number one, how did Jason find Alice? Now, according to the novelization, Alice had returned to Crystal Lake and the recommendation of her therapist basically uh, to face her fears. You got to get out there and figure it out. So earlier in the day before the events of the film, Alice was spotted by Jason and followed her back to the house she was staying at. So per the novel, which I guess was uh, greenlit by them and allowed to carry the IP, is canon, but not canon. Yeah. So, who knows? Misconception number two. Did Jason call Alice? Again, this is explained away in the novelization as simply being a call from Alice's mother, uh, mother that didn't go through based on a bad connection. We lived in a time where... That you know, happened. It happened, and people... Like, I guess now, a dropped phone call on a cell phone 
could happen, but it's less yeah. likely. But a landlines, like if the wind blew too hard, you know, your reception would suck. It was just a different time. Yes. So that's plausible. Our final misconception is that an issue for the viewing audience would be a misconception for Adrian herself because when she showed up on set to film her scene, there wasn't a script, like, at all. Nope. She, she had this to say. Honestly, when I got on the set that weekend, I didn't know if it was over for Alice until I got there. They never gave me a script for part two. They said, oh, just go to go in there and improv. I'm not kidding. This is how it happened. That whole phone conversation, not scripted, all improv. Now, if I hadn't just told you that that was improv, would you have known? No, no. It, she did very well. Like, it sounded it, like she improv the reasons why. Like, she, she's making all her justifications. She, she's tying it back to the verb. She did great. I, I'm not going to go as I'm far. I'm going to stalk her down and be tell her what a fan I know. That's a horrible joke. I can't even make finish that joke. Well, she's not coming to Frankenstein anytime no. soon. She will be. <laughs> um. Man, I I I don't want to talk badly about her because I don't think she's a bad actress and it's not her fault. I think, especially after watching it post me knowing this, it does come across as a little of a one-sided phone conversation where somebody's... Giving all the exposition out yeah, loud. But it, again, this my standards for logic and acting and they're, they're very skewed when it comes to slashers had this been like an a, a prestige a24 psychological horror thriller I mean like that thing's dog shit but it's not it's Friday the 13th part well two. this is this is what we're here to do we're here yeah, to we're here to break it down we're here to prop up bad movies and tear down good ones yeah we, we find the middle ground on everything. All right, number two, Crazy Ralph, who is once again played by the great Walt Gorney, makes his way to the Pakenak Lodge because he can't take his own damn advice and stay away because the area's quote-unquote death curse. Despite his best efforts to warn the counselors on the possibility of being killed himself, ironically ends up dead when Jason strangles him from behind a tree with a piece of wire. What do you give this kill? I give it a six out of 10. I like the whole setup. I like the fact that he's caught breaking, you know, he's there to stare at young teenagers, even though there's a death curse. Six out of 10. I gave it a five out of 10. I wholeheartedly object to crazy Ralph being killed in any way because his character serves as an important narrative function. He's the soothsayer. They, the harbinger or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yes. And they they re, they basically have the same character in part three played and by I different guys. I liked him better. <laughs> to the eye thing. Just that, tipped it He over. gave me this. For the sake of continuity and just, you know, yeah. and giving a lineage to these movies, I think you should have waited to kill, you know, Crazy Ralph later on. So I, I think it was a mistake to kill him, but... Your miles may vary on that. Uh, number three, Detepi- Edge can't talk. Deputy Winslow catches Jeff and Sandra snooping around the old camp, uh, Crystal Lake, and takes them back to the Pakenek Lodge. He explains to Paul that the area has been quiet for the past five years, and he wants to keep it that way. As he's driving away from the camp, he sees Jason dart across the road and decides to go give chase. And he's fat and does a very poor, yes. poor job. He get finally gets to Jason's shack and he gets a hammer with a claw portion plunged into his head. Way give this kill four out of ten. Like it's just a basic. They didn't they didn't try too hard, and the motherfucker should have taken his own advice and like I didn't see shit and kept on driving. I rated it a little higher. I gave it a six out of ten. This kill isn't anything special, understandably, but it 
serves a function. It lets the audience know that the police aren't going to be uh, a, a basically an effective yeah. escape from from all this. I can't help but think that it wouldn't take long for another cop to head out looking for him if he went missing. But, you know, maybe with it being, we got to think, too, it's the, the time. Like, they maybe didn't know what area he was in. It's true. So, I mean, I can And doesn't this that. mainly take place over 24 hours? Like, you know. Pretty much, yeah. So, yeah, they, they might they might have thought he, you know, decided to go to the whorehouse or the bar to drink so he wouldn't even be noticed missing. Because all off, cops are crooked. He's off duty. Yeah, there we go. He was out looking for Sliz. <laughs> uh, trivia: uh, The character of Deputy Winslow isn't uh, actually named in the film, but he did get a formal title in the novelization of Part Two. Deputy Winslow was played by Jack Marks. The role required Jack to drive the squad car, which was a problem because he didn't know how to drive at all. So they had him. They gave him like a crash course in driving, just to get him enough to drive like the two feet yeah. that he like drives up. So that's that's pretty funny. Who the fuck doesn't like? I actually know. A couple people in my life, but you know, that are adults that don't know how to drive. But come on, man. Number four Jeff and Sandra are punished for snooping around the old Camp Crystal Lake and aren't allowed to go to the bar with most of the counselors. A few other counselors stay back as well, but they do, but, but little do they know this will be the only time in history of slasher films yes. where drinking a beer would actually save their lives. Terry decides to double down on the murderable offense of being attractive, being in a slasher movie, and skinny dipping in the lake. So she's going to be DOA pretty oh, quick. Yeah. When she makes her way back to the shore, her clothes are missing because Scott, who is played by Russell Todd, who you may remember from Chopping Mall, is all horned up and just shy of rapey. Just just shy of rapey. Yeah, still not good. 80, 80s, Hashtag canceled. An 80, 80s good guy. <laughs> 80s level of acceptable rape. Um, <laughs> he's going to doubly pay for his skeeziness when he finds himself hanging upside down in a rope snare. Terry heads back to camp in search of a knife to cut Scott down, but in her absence, Jason returns to slice his prey with a throat slit via machete. What do you give this kill? It's like a six half. It's a pretty gnarly throat slit, even though you can tell they cut it out, you know, cut it. This whole movie was fucked by the MPA. I liked it. Six and a half. I gave this way higher. I gave oh. it an eight out of ten. Scott kind of brings this on himself, and even though I really enjoy seeing Terry naked, um, Scott getting his just desserts as a perv is pretty yeah, sweet. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I didn't factor in the, his sins that led him there. I just took it to kill this time. But yeah, no, I agree. That's the... Yeah. All right, here's a little bit of trivia. Um, there's a huge misconception about Jason using the wrong side of the machete in this kill since the movie was released back in 81. What people don't realize is that Jason is using what's called a hawkbill machete, which is sharpened on both sides, and it's primarily used down to chop down like high stalks, yeah. that kind of stuff. So those of you people that are saying they cut with the wrong side, you are incorrect. But I was one of those people who thought that. But thank God for the internet. I did too. I was a well actually person, but we just got doubly well actually by Brandon. Well, actually, it's a hot bell machine, but sharp on both lines. That's the one time that kind of attitude has worked positively. <laughs> exactly. Uh, number five, despite her better judgment, Terry returns to cut down Scott from the rope snare, but after discovering his dead body, Runs screaming into the night with her death appearing off screen. What do you give this to? 
It's barely. I'm being generous with two. She screams into the camera, and no, I I rated it a little higher. I gave it a five. I'm fine with one kill like this in a slasher movie, but I think it should occur very early in the. In yeah, the movie. you're setting up phase. Uh, not the like, problem is that we're like five people into the movie, and I expect a little more from that point. But if they killed Terry earlier in the movie, even if it was on screen, uh, I would have been unhappy with that because she's very attractive and I want to look at her. She should have been hung upside down and sawed in half like, you know, Bone Tomahawk or Terrifier. I was going to say Terrifier. Um, all right. Terry is played by the smoking hot Kristen Baker. And I think we should all bow down and thank her for the lengths she had to go to add titillation to Friday the 13th Part 2. She had this to say, my favorite moment on set was when they blew me off with a DC-9 engine hooked up to a generator during my swimming scene where I had to go in and out five times in December in Connecticut. (laughs) Oh, man. The Friday 13th series is known for its stellar use of nudity. Where does Terry rank among the hottest uh, women who bear it all? She's like probably top ten, like seven or something, because you got a lot of heavy hitters that come later. And what is it about Friday the 13th movies and trying to kill wimp actresses with hypothermia by filming water scenes repeatedly? The chicken part four from Weird Jude, Science. Jude yeah. Aronson. Damn, people. Now it was a different time. Yep. The sacrifices had now to be Now they made. have to treat actresses and actors like people. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, well, it, they if, in the future, it'll all be uh, AI, you know, yes. deep fake generated. We can and then, do whatever. And then finally, we'll get to make that scat porn with uh, Meryl <laughs> Streep where she gets fisted by Humphrey Bogart. That's the movie I Here's want. Here's looking at you, kid. That's the name of the movie. Here's looking at you, skid. Oh, see? Yeah. It was right there. It's in, it's in the ass. Thanks for picking up my fumble. All right, number six. Throughout the film, Vicky and Mark have had a you know, sort of a burgeoning love affair that comes to fruition with some not-so-subtle talk about his if his dick works or not because he's in a wheelchair. Vicky goes off to clean up a bit before they hook up, and Mark, you know, he makes his way outside. He's kind of hyping himself up to get some of that sweet, sweet pussy. And he's on the porch of the Pakenak Lodge when he... Out of fucking nowhere, yeah. gets lopped in the face with a machete. The impact wildly sends him down a flight of steps. There's only one rating to give this. 10 out of 10, man. This is, this is, 10 this is a 10. fucking best kill in the whole movie. The fucking machete in the face. How long that fucking wheelchair goes down a huge flight of stairs. It's fucking amazing. I don't care... That he doesn't deserve this death at no, all. No, it's the saddest, because right before, oh, people don't want to see a drunk guy in a wheelchair. It's the only reason he didn't go to the bar, because he didn't want to bum everybody else out. It's so fucking satisfying seeing a wheelchair bob down a super long yes, staircase. I wonder how many times I had to do that. Um... I'm sure it's on some kind of something to keep it I'm up. Pretty, I'm pretty sure that, like, the way they did that is, like, they had a, a rail mechanism okay. so it would, like, kind of stay it on track. But whatever they did, it's fantastic. 10 so. out of 10, no, no second thoughts. Now, I'm not the only one who thinks the kill uh, is fantastic. Director Steve Miner has praised it as well. He had this to say, My favorite murder is when Mark gets the machete in his head. Part of the thrill in these movies is that the audience knows 
that the guy or gal is going to get it, but the tension builds up as if they're trying to guess when and where it's going to come from. And what I like to do is distract the audience as much as possible. The build-up to the machete killing is nice because it really throws the audience off. Mark was played by Tom McBride, who tragically passed away in 1995 from AIDS. Uh, one thing I learned about the character in doing research from this episode that I didn't previously know is that Mark, uh, Mark's last name is Jarvis. It's not canon, but fans have tried to connect him to Tommy and Trish from the final chapter, so uh, cousin because they live in the same area, but they're not connected. They're they're not tragically scarred by the loss of a suit, like a second cousin. Like I knew an Alicia Mefford around my age in Morristown, second cousin. Didn't really know him, but they existed. So, is there any way that, that like that this could be canon? And like being that the next couple movies kind of take place over the next couple of days, that yeah. just news didn't, just didn't get they, to they them. They didn't quick know enough? about it. Yeah, I mean, they do read in the newspaper. I guess it's possible that perhaps they would not have been able to identify the body. Exactly. Just Still, like, kind of keep it under wraps till they're, while they're investigating. So, food for thought. Uh, if you want to make him uh, part of the Jarvis clan, you can. In fact, if you play the video game, there's these things uh, called the Pamela tapes that were written by Adam Green of the Hatchet series. Yeah. And he sort of implies that there's more to the Jarvis Voorhees legacy than we've seen on screen, going as far to say that uh, Tommy's father was a medical professional who may have been uh, doing some things that they were not fond of. So if you haven't played a video game, find those tapes. Good stuff, all the same. All right, number seven and eight. Sandra seduces Jeff into stabbing her with his meat spear, but little did she know that she was going to get double penetrated when Jason plunges his spear through both Jeff and Sandra mid-coitus. What do you give this kill? I give this, again, because this is kind of like a, a less effective Kevin Bacon kill from the first one. I, I still give it a seven and a half. I mean, it's still a, like a fun kill. I gave it an eight out of ten. I give the unrated version of this scene a ten yeah. out of ten. Uh, Jeff wasn't the only one getting fucked in this scene. The scene itself got fucked by the MPAA, which is just they were prime target during the time. Do you want to hear another fun fact I learned on the way up here please, about this kill? Please do. You know, they kind of had to do it like they did Kevin Bacon sitting there and the guy, Jeff... Is that the Jeff and, Jeff and Sandra? The yeah. character, yeah. He was having a miserable time doing it, and one of the sound guys is like, "Here, man, open your mouth real quick." Blue powder in his mouth, and he's like, "They could have done fifteen takes because I was having such a good time." So they they gave him drugs uh, to help him get through a difficult shoot. Yeah, th this this kill is 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 excellent. It's iconic. And it uh, that kind of makes you look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. You have to suffer for your art or maybe even enjoy it at that point. Yeah. Uh, the Kill is probably the most infamous of the film for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because of how similar it is to Mario Bava's Twitch of the Death Nerve. By the way, the crew have vehemently denied intentionally or unintentionally ripping it off, but I'll leave that to debate in the comments below. However, the other thing that has kept people talking about the scene was the until recently lost footage. So this footage that's on the Screen Factory edition, you're seeing basically the same thing, but there's still some motion going on while the thing's yeah. in there. So it's like she's literally being double double penetrated in both a... It's so hot. A pleasurable <laughs> and unpleasurable way. 
So you haven't seen the? No, I haven't seen them. Uh, you, re- I highly recommend it. I, I think it, it's one of those. It was like the holy grail of cut kills. And I think the other thing is there's an alternate ending to part three that has been you know, lost to time. There's production yeah, photos, but I've no seen one the had, product. I've seen, I'm aware of that one, but. but this was the one that like, everybody's like, Oh my God, you know, they were so heartbroken that it got cut from the movie because it's was one of the more memorable moments in terms of the special yeah. effects. And you got to feel bad for Carl Fullerton, who a lot of his work got kind of cut out of the movie and fucking MPAA man. Yeah. So, a little bit of uh, trivia. Jeff was played by Bill Randolph, who you may remember from Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. Friday the 13th, Part 2, and Dress to Kill share another connection, and that's the Newsboy cap. It's the exact same cap in both films. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) I I watched this not long ago, it being Dress to Kill on Tubi. Yeah. Fantastic movie. And I had done my research and stuff, and... It kind of sparked, like, well, I haven't watched that in a while. I wanted to watch it. And his scene's small, but he he really does stick out. It's a memorable part of the movie because she's like, oh, I'm being followed, you know, blah, 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 you know, know, take me here, there, or whatever. Sandra was played by Marta Kober, who was underage at the time, which makes the sex scene all the more shocking in retrospect. Marta had this to say about her death scene. It took nine hours to make that fake back. Then I would slide in and out underneath Bill for hours. Filming that day, it was grueling, but it's my claim to fame. Okay, so there is a big debate about her being underage and almost a people remembering things that may or may not be there. Um, I believe that... Of all the things I've experienced in my life, this is probably the closest I can attribute to an actual Mandela effect. I remember there being nudity in this scene. I wanted to in my head too, but I think I've I've been able to explain this in a way. It's like it's a sex scene in the Friday the Thirteenth movie. It's kind of like uh, the the chick in uh, Part Seven with her and the dude in the camper. You think, yeah, there's tits. That's Part Six. Part Six. It's, I'm sorry. Part six, you think in your head, man, I remember titties, but there's not. I no, think it's this kind of same situation. I just, I, I, I remember, I remember my parents going to the grocery store to Food Lion and me having a window of opportunity. And I had just got it on VHS and I fast forward to that moment so I could slap my dingus around. Well, you might have switched dimensions. I, I, I think as far as like things that I can point to that are, there's really only a couple, but this is, this is the one where I've like, man, I don't know, but I'm not the only one because there's a legions of people online who believe that this was in the movie. So here's where it gets interesting. There are people who believe it was in the movie and has been removed because she was underage. When you see him on top of her, she, she appears to be naked. Which that's a gr- more than a gray yes. area in of itself. If she's underage and they're filming, you know, seeing an underage girl, yes. whether they show it on screen or not. So I don't know. There's some differences of opinions, but what do you think about a 17 year old girl? Like, it, put your daughters in this position. They it could be the horror movie. Do it now. No, no, I understand. Like, there's a lot of fucking power hungry parents, man. 
that just left their kids or like it could be like a Tracy Lord situation who famously did porn at 16 because she ran away and you know was trying to do whatever like ultimately I'm glad there's no nudity parents should have been involved but with, with the exchange rate this is like 1980 when they're filming it and released in 81 17 that's like 23 nowadays actually no usually back in the 80s she would have been played by a 23 year old playing a 17 yeah. so this is like the weird exception to prove the rule thing but no i don't think a parent should let a young kid you know a a, a young child do well, sex scenes but you know then again I, how many years were, are we separated from like pretty baby we're like Brooke oh Shields. god Brooke yeah. Shields flat is, out nude at 12 and or, and that's that documentary is is just harrowing yeah. she did a hulu documentary recently yes i've hollywood is a fucked up place like even in the best ways yeah. like and, and i don't know i mean i don't know that if marta was uh, exploited necessarily. I don't think it's the end of the world. She has her claim to fame. It's not like she was paraded around nude. It's a very vanilla sex scene. So at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world. It's nothing to cancel the movie for. Please don't. I love this movie. All right, we'll move on. Number nine, Vicky goes off to make herself 1,000% less sexy by, <laughs> by putting on a pair of poop brown panties and spraying perfume on, burn. on her stinky pussy. She struts back to the Packneck Lodge in search of Mark, but discovers Jason instead, who is hiding in Jeff and Sandra's bed. We get we get a really great killer yes. POV shot of Jason looming over Vicky. He slowly approaches and plunges the kitchen knife deep inside of her. Way give this kill, like taking the whole scene into account. Eight and a half. Like I mean, it's a great tense scene. Like the actual, I'm just gonna stab you. It's not so hot, but like the overall thing, it's an eight and a half. It's probably one of the few times in the whole series where like, man, this is fucking. Oh, her her so, 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 face yeah. sells it. She fucking kills and I, is killed. And I think that's because she was probably genuinely scared um, by the moment. And yeah. I mean, that's sometimes acting is simply reacting. So she does a fantastic job. I gave it an 8 out of 10. Vicky has a great scream. And the POV shot is very reminiscent of, like, Jello movies. And I wasn't a huge Jello fan then. But now, oh, yeah, but yeah. now like, you know, it's like this is straight out of Tenebrae, you know. Old school, uh, Deep Red, or one of those uh, excellent films. The editor. From that. I'm sure. He's the editor. Simple, but very effective. Now, Vicky is an incredibly likable character and was played on screen by the lovely and incredibly kind Lauren Marie Taylor, who has been kind enough to stop by the Black Lodge and talk about her experiences on Friday the 13th Part 2 how it's affected her life, and even give us some insight to those infamously ugly brown <laughs> panties. Take it away, Lauren. It's Lauren Marie Taylor, obviously, Vicky from Friday the 13th Part 2. Thank you for inviting me to be part of your rants from the Black Lodge podcast and your Friday the 13th Part 2 retrospective. Um, working on the movie, it was my first uh, principal role in a movie, I'd had some experience in smaller roles with some directors just to get some experience of working on film. But Friday the 13th Part 2 as Vicky was my very first big film experience. And it definitely taught me a lot about being reliable, being uh, on time. It also taught me how 
to just go with the flow because even though Steve Miner and the production had a shooting schedule that was very specific for every single day, you just never knew what was going to happen. So it taught me how to be really very flexible in terms of my approach and what to expect on a day-to-day basis in terms of filming a movie. You know, it's not like you go to college and you go to class or you're doing a student film and you're doing this film, you know, this scene and this scene and this scene on a given day, you know, things like weather or somebody getting stuck in traffic on the way back up from the city to Kent, Connecticut, where we were filming it, (laughs) especially weather, because it would be raining and then we couldn't shoot anything or it'd be too cold and we couldn't go into the water, which was fine with me because I couldn't swim anyway. But it was fun and it taught me about behind the scenes things because we never... Um, just sort of left the set, you know, we never really left the camp to go and do our own thing. We were there even when other actors were doing their scenes. So we got to, I got to learn a lot about how the lighting works, how the sound works, special effects, especially because obviously there's a lot of blood and a lot of latex and a lot of blood. (laughs) So you learn a lot about that and that they don't actually kill people in these movies, which of course, You know, I didn't know that. I was like, do they really kill people? But obviously they don't, at least not mainstream movies. I don't know about other movies. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. So that was kind of cool. And, you know, the only way it really impacted my life, besides teaching me how to be an actress that goes with the flow, was now, after going to conventions, it's just really been incredible for me to travel around the country and even to Europe to meet people who just love the franchise and who love part two because they feel like the characters are more relatable than maybe some of the later ones, especially when you start going into outer space and things like that and meeting up with Freddie and other people like that. So I think people kind of like the old schoolness of part two. So it's been really exciting for me and lots of fun for me to go out and meet the people who have been so supportive of this franchise, as well as new fans too. It's always fun to see younger people. I don't want to say like five-year-olds, but, you know, teenagers and other young people. I mean, everybody's young to me right now, right? I did the movie 41 years ago. So it's kind of fun to meet those people and be out there. And what else? I mean, I could talk forever. (laughs) You know, maybe I'll be on your podcast, like on the podcast, besides just sending you a little, um, a little tidbit like this. But in terms of these, these brown undies, those were not my idea. I'm not going to lie. I had on those really nice, basic black ones and they were really pretty, but this was, you know, after the seventies, 1980 and satin was in. So it was Steve Miner's idea for me to wear these. And now I wear them like this, you know, like a nightcap at night you know, sleeping cap, if you will. No, I don't really, but I do do photo ops with them at conventions. Oh my gosh. They're pretty much fun. But anyway, it was Steve Miner's idea because satin was in and I don't know if Brown was in, but satin was in. So that was his idea. Anyway, I hope I was helpful to you. You take care. Good luck. And thanks for uh, having me uh, rack a few different memories in my brain. I appreciate it. Take care. Thank you so much, Lauren, for the audio. We're eternally grateful for your participation, and if you're ever in the Tennessee area, I'll gladly take you to the mall and buy you a pair of panties in any color other than brown that you want. Now, one quick thing. 
about Lauren before we move on. She actually had a crush on her castmate, Tom McBride. She flirted with him and... And she didn't quite understand that he was not interested in her yes. genitalia, so that that's uh, that's kind of a cute thing. Well, I heard he could let her down very nicely. Yeah, but she just seems like she was just such a nice, you know, innocent, yeah. you know, little thing. And she's she's a really nice human being now. Very very uh, cool to her fans. So if you meet her at a convention or stuff. She always brings the brown panties with her, and she has a good oh, sense of humor awesome. about it. She's just, she's great. All right. Number 10, and I'm putting four asterisks <laughs> yes. on this. Paul and Jenny return to the Packadec Lodge to discover an empty house. In the darkness, Jenny senses a presence and is validated when Jason attacks Paul. In the finale of the film, if it's a dream and Paul is presumed dead... This has to be the point where it happens unless you take the film at face value when Jason actually jumps through the cabin window and Muffin the Dog is somehow still alive. I, I Just in reading my own notes, I don't know how to, to phrase I have this. a rating. It's Schrodinger six and a half because it is and is not simultaneously a great setup scene. Like She's like, there's somebody here. We're not alone. That's kind of really, again, this is back when... These sequels could try to be scary and succeed. It's I'm, great, but then I'm, he just... I'm going to interject real quick. Okay. When you rewatch this, did you... Where did you Where did you watch it? Uh, the uh, DVD box set. Okay. Here's the thing. Physical media is a wonderful thing. Um, and with every new successive generation, we clean up film and we make it look more pristine. I think this may be a case where the DVD is better than the Blu-ray because you can see Jason so clearly in the Blu-ray, it kind of ruins the anticipation of the moment. Yeah, so I can see that. For your perspective, I completely agree. However, I think Blu-ray in this instance, is it kind of hurts that moment. So, is Paul alive or dead? <laughs> I'm just going to say dead just because I don't want to overthink it too much. Like Jason fucks him up. Like he's attacking Jason. Usually there's not a lot of survivors from the, the Friday the 13th movies, unless you get into the whole chick from part three's backstory, weird attempted rape thing. That's a whole other can of worms. We'll get to, he wanted to tickle her. I, I even at the end, he's excited to, to like try to sexually saw her. He's all covered in blood in, in that dream sequence. No, Jason, Jason doesn't like sex. Mommy wouldn't like that. That's true. He, he's like Lenny with the bunny rabbits. Yeah. He's, he just loves too hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If, if this is another dream or hallucination, uh, when does it begin? I'm going to just say when she got like it taken at face value in the movie without overthinking all these other little clues. When she goes into the cabin, he jumps. That's the, it's, it's just a quick jump scare ending. Everything in the cabin happens, happens. Everything like that happens. It's just right there at the end. That's her dream sequence. She's in shock and, you know, getting wheeled out. Because there's all kinds of, they're fun to think about. All these fun different fan theories and this and that. They're super fun. But at the end of the day, they meant all that I just said. Like all that happened, happened. And then there's a random dream sequence that if you put too much thought into, makes no fucking sense and throws everything off. 
but that's just it. It is what it is. If you take the movie at face value, at the very end, where you have Jenny being carted off, yeah. where's Paul? Where's Paul? The implication being is that he is dead. Yeah. And so, with that in mind, when we see Jason unmasked, when he jumps through the you know the window, he's got red hair and long gingers have no soul and, and a beard <laughs> and so that's not Jason that's just her she's amalgamed yeah. that in her mind so it doesn't even work under all that hair and beard and shit wouldn't fit under the pillow set now in part three they go with you know something more akin to what little kid Jason looked like in part one yeah so me just putting the pieces together with the established lore uh the shit in the Jason's cabin didn't happen. But then they have the coda where you go back to the cabin and Jason's mom's head is there. So is the cabin there, but nothing, but we didn't go there. I don't know. <laughs> it's, I think all the cabin shit happened. Her brave finals, you know, stand. And then afterward is the, the jumping off point to the dream. That's just me. But the dog comes back. Earlier, it, it, the, for me, if this is going to make logical sense, the part where I think somebody's in here, Paul, that has to be the moment where something happens and we're switching from reality to dream. And Jason kills him and Jenny goes into hysterics, passes out, and dreams this whole scenario. So we don't even go to Jason's cabin. It's it's not there. Oh, Also, I didn't bring this up earlier, but in Jason's cabin, there is a toilet. He's got a shit. There's no running water to this. It's got a hole. It's got he a- goes into town and steals some lime every now and then, throw a layer on it. <laughs> you know. He wipes his ass with dead bunny rabbits. Exactly. He's, he's got like a, you know, a, there's a really nasty animal pelt by the toilet. All right. Well, back to Paul. His demise was purposely left vague to hopefully have idiots like us debate it for years to come. All the 42 same. 42 years later, here we are. John Fury had this to say about his fate. You know... What happened to my character, like she said at the end of the movie, where's Paul? Are they, and they said, we don't, I'm, I completely read this wrong. Let me try this again. Yes. You didn't know what happened to my character, like she said at the end of the movie, where's Paul? And they said, we don't know. We haven't found him yet. So they purposely left it ambiguous. So alive or dead, Paul left a memorable mark on the Friday the 13th uh, series. Uh, but it would be an absolute crime not to gush over the effects artist. So let's talk about Carl Fullerton very uh, quickly, and then we're going to start to wrap things up. He did effects for Altered States, Ghost Story, The Hunger, Return of Swamp Thing, Warlock, Goodfellas, Silence of the Lambs, and many others. Carl's body of work speaks for itself, but he wasn't the first or even the second choice to helm the effects. Tom Savini was offered the chance to return, and he had this to say. They offer me part two, and then I get the script. Jason is running around. I thought, what are you doing? There is no Jason. You know, the mother is the killer. Jason was the kid that drowned in the lake. Oh, oh, we're going to change all that. Well, they never did. So I chose something else. I chose The Burning, which is sort of a ripoff of Friday the 13th. With Savini unavailable, they turned to special effects legend Stan Winston to deliver the gore for part two. Winston took the job and was soon forced to depart due to scheduling conflicts, which made the way for Fullerton. So 
would Tom Savini or Stan Winston have been a better choice, or was this production sort of damned in terms of the MPAA not allowing them to get? I think away? it was damned, and for what the the time frame he had, I think he did amazing. There's like the fucking ten out of ten wheelchair, the great throat slit, uh, the the bed pinning. He did great. I'm not saying that he did a bad job in any. Regard. I think. I don't think. Like, Tom Sabini and Stan Winston, I know them more, and I know they're, like, legendary, but I don't think, maybe they would have thought up different kills. That might, that now that's true, but if they just had to do, the, never mind, that's, it's a hard question. I think what stands the first Friday the 13th above a lot of its contemporaries is that the kills were so inventive and it was like the magic trick of how you did it. Yes. Um, the spear through the bed, that's a classic. The uh, Jason jumping through the window, had something memorable. But some of the other kills, even when they're good, they're less memorable than like some of the other things from, from the series. So I got what you're saying. So yeah. I think that Savini probably would have had more more impact in terms of like how creatively to do something true but the mpaa was still going to crack down on this movie regardless because the first one spit in their face and shit on their lawn true all right before we close up believe it or not friday 13th part two actually showcases a handful of survivors chief among them we have a character that spends most of the running time of the film drinking at the bar we have Stu charno as ted He's in John Carpenter's Christine, Once Bitten with Jim Carrey. Just one of the guys. That's the sex comedy where the girl pretends to be a guy and uh, like sexy hijinks happens. I remember renting that movie and, and not and not knowing there was going to be boobs in it. I was so fucking excited. Yeah, because like, wasn't it PG-13? Yeah. It's like, it just like a two seconds of boobs right there at the end. It's fucking great. I had a uh, a VCR with four heads on it. So when oh, you yeah. paused it, there were no Clean. lines. Clean. Perfect uh, 240 uh, resolution tits. <laughs> Chef's kiss. Uh, it was also an episode of Freddy's Nightmares. So there's a little crossover there yeah. from the uh, from the series. He also, this is the most interesting thing that I found out about him. He wrote three episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. My all-time, wow. my all-time favorite series. So he has respect for me on multiple levels. The character of Ted is well-loved in the Friday the 13th fandom, especially when you consider that he not only survives, but he gets to survive because he drank. Okay, Stu had this to say. I'm glad that Ted wasn't killed in some gruesome way. While everyone else back at the camp was having sex, I stayed out to drink more. I think that's a good life lesson for us all. Don't get (laughs) chopped up by Jason. Go get drunk. I've been drunk since 1981 just to avoid getting chopped up by monsters. My hero. Him getting killed in this movie, standard-wise, would have made perfect sense. Oh, yeah, I sense. thought he was fucking dead. I thought they were going to say one of the marquee kills of the movie for him. In the in the first movie, you have the character who is, you know, kind of the, the you know, I'm going to make all the yeah. funny comments and, you know, do the, the Native American thing yes. when, the, when the cop shows up. And that guy, you know, he gets it. So you kind of think, like, we're going to set him up as being one of the cornerstone kills. But no, he gets to survive. Mm-hmm. Um... You Does know this, what would have been more effective if he died in a drunk driving accident on the way back to camp? That's, that's canon just, now. Just kind of mentioned off screen, like, "Oh, we got this car wreck. These people." He and he wasn't the one driving. That's that's the even more. Oh God, <laughs> he was hit by a drunk driver. 
<laughs> we just keep compounding it. No, I love that he lived, and I love his lesson. Everybody should be drunk all the time. Now, the established lore of slasher films in terms of like what is and what is not the rules for survival. that He broke them. Yeah, he did break them, but... Um, he probably got some pussy in that bathroom at the bar too. Oh, that woman! He was he was wearing her down. The the barmaid. Uh, they they drank, did blow, and fucked. Yeah, and she got pregnant, <laughs> and his baby was killed in a car and drunk driving car. You know, his baby grew up to be um, the kid from Scream who knows all the horror movie cliches. Yeah, and he got killed in a Randy. Car yeah, Randy. Randy got killed in a car, but not a car wreck. Yeah, his man. That's true. He actually survived, and two days later, he was killed in a drunk driving accident. <laughs> That's beside the point. Anyway. So, speaking of surviving, I feel like we've survived drowning in all these facts for Friday the 13th Part 2. But before we close up shop, I want to hear some opinions. What's your final verdict on Friday the 13th Part 2? Solid sequel. I mean, it's a good B-plus entry in the series. I'm going to say this, and we'll, we'll leave it at that. Friday the 13th Part 2 takes what the first movie did and... Not in every instance, but in most instances, does it better. It has a bigger budget. It's way nicer shot. Like, this is a much more professional-looking yes. movie than the first one. The acting is much better across the board. The one area that I would say it's lacking is that the special effects are not the bombastic moments that you have yeah. in the first movie. But in almost every instance... It's a better film, but it will never have the legacy that the first one did because you can only do something like this for one the first time, time yes. once. I think that's going to close us up for tonight, but we'll be back soon with another episode for the Rants for the Black Lodge podcast. And uh, so stay tuned for that. Till then, subscribe to the Rants for the Black Lodge podcast on one of the many platforms we're available on, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So please go give us a, a sub if you haven't already. Don't forget to stop by our webpage at juicycruger.com. Follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge. And for the love of Cthulhu, buy a t-shirt or a mug from our web store at rantarmy.com. For Fat Tony, this is Brennan A. Lane signing off. Till next month, Rant Army, keep marching.